sing it, Willie. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast, where Mickey Mouse is in the public domain, baby. We're changing the title of the show to The Mickey Mouse Show. But only The Mickey Mouse Show from Steamboat Willie, in parentheses, for legal purposes. Oh, yeah. No, no, it's it's not called The Mickey Mouse Club, which was, you know, yes. that, that's still owned by the Disney Corporation. Mm, I think we're getting into murky waters here. They are very That's litigious. fine. You know what? Murk them up. <laughs> Mickey has been squeaky clean for too long. Yeah. It's time to make him filthy. Well, there are already a and, bunch of slashers coming out. Oh, yeah. In fact, one came out on the 1st of January. Like, nice. the day the Mickey lapsed into the public domain. Like, some filmmakers were waiting. Yeah. Uh, and and that is exactly what I want to happen. I want it to just cheap, dumb slasher movies starring Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Call him Mickey Mouse. Why is it only the Disney stuff we do this with? Like, Lady Chatterley's Lover mm-hmm. is in public domain now, too, as of January 1st? Where's uh-huh. that slasher movie? I'd love to see, like, Lady Chatterley with, like, Drippy Fog yeah. or something. Uh, I'm Whitney, that's William. Hi! Uh, <laughs> my name's William Biani. I am a critic. He's Whitney Seibold. Mm-hmm. He is a critic. That's right. This is our show. Uh, one of many. One of our many podcasts. Uh, the reason we don't do that with Lady Chatterley's Lover is because Lady Chatterley's Lover w- wasn't dominated by a corporate entity that wanted to very carefully control its image. Hmm. It'd uh, still be a good movie, though. I, I'm sure it would be, <laughs> and I would not reject the idea. Okay. But I'm not I'm not itching to see, you know, a slasher version of Lady Chatterley's Lover. Fair enough. Mickey Mouse belongs to not just a giant mega corporation, but one that is preoccupied hmm. with its image, with its, you know the way it's perceived by the public. Right. Uh, and it requires of itself to be this kind of wholesome, squeaky clean, totally bland version of this character that they invented in mm-hmm. 1928. Uh, I want that to be attacked. Mm-hmm. Po- point is, it, if there was like a corporation saying, you yeah. can't do anything with that, yeah. well, that's going to make us want to do that's, things with that's, it. So, that's yeah. true. I will say this. I do believe that... Um, I believe that making really low-budget slasher movies with really cheap Mickey Mouse masks uh-huh. is fine, mm-hmm. but it's also really kind of obvious, and it's it's kind of the laziest version of that. I would like to see some enterprising animator make Steamboat Willie cartoons. That'd be nice. Like, compete yeah. with Disney. Like, oh, I'm using this version of Mickey and Minnie and whatever the cat's name was. I forgot. It was Pete. It was Pete? Yeah. Okay. Peg Lake Pete. Yeah, okay. Didn't remember if you had a Peg Lake at the time. But yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You got those characters. Go nuts. You've got the do- you've got the uh, the donkey that ate uh, a guitar. Oh, and yeah. was then played like a guitar. Mm. And I think there was a hippopotamus for some reason whose teeth were like a xylophone. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You've got all those characters beat Disney at their own game. There you go. I would like to see that. That's the, I think the, that's that. I think is the best thing to do. Yeah. I, I, I hope some other company has the temerity to actually do that. Right? Can you imagine if like if like Sony, like their animation department's like, let's do it. I think <laughs> let's the, do it, guys. I, I think the issue with that is another company need also would want to sort of to copyright whatever they make. Of course. And they can't. So if, if they were to say this awful. is our version of Steamboat Willie, but it's in the public domain. It's like... Hmm. I'm pretty sure... I'm, I'm not pretty sure... sure. You, you can adapt Frankenstein and still make money off of Frankenstein. That's true. I'm not yeah. I'm not sure what the rule is for 
that I think, kind I, of thing. I think like it's that specific new entity. Of would be. I think that's yeah. how it works. But anyway, um, hey, welcome back to Critically Acclaimed. It's a new year. Happy New Year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we've got some catching up to do. We intended to do a Critically Acclaimed episode over the Christmas holiday. Uh, and then, um, well, it was the Christmas holiday. <laughs> we, still did, yeah. we still did some stuff, but we weren't able to put this podcast together. So this week, we're going to be catching up on some movies from the very end of December. A lot of these are movies that are going to be uh, released even like wider uh, as January rolls along. Uh, and then next week on Critically Acclaimed, we're going to be doing our, our picks for the very best films of 2023, which is cool because that gives us a little bit more time to watch them. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people have to do their lists in like early December. And it's like, that is not fucking fair. No. Like, 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 they're, like I have to, like, these movies have haven't even come all, out yet. Some of them haven't even screened. Mm-hmm. You know? It's like, it's, it's, it's not fair. And Honestly, so uh, we wait. We're, we're getting to some of the Christmas releases, mm-hmm. but even so, I wasn't able to see them all. So sure. we're just going to be talking about what we got to. Yeah. Uh, this is by no means like a definitive no, but Christmas season episode. It's quite a bit of the big ones, though. So this uh, this week we're going to be reviewing uh, a movie we could have reviewed last week, but I wanted to wait until Whitney had seen it. Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire. Mm-hmm. Uh but uh, in time for our last episode, it had a small Oscar qualifying run, but over the Christmas holiday, it was released on Netflix, and I ran a chance to see it. Uh, it was the number one film on Netflix, but number seven and number nine, and I think this is interesting, were the seventh and eighth straight-to-video sequels to the Tom Berenger movie Sniper. There's ten of those. There's ten of those, and two of them, <laughs> not the first and not the last... We're on the top ten most watched Netflix movies. Yeah, it, movies it was the, on Netflix. Parts part seven and eight. Yeah, so um, that was a little odd. Know, yeah, the, 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 they're they're like Hollywood studios. You're like, God, I wish we could get those Sniper Eight numbers. Like weird universe in which we live. But anyway, Rebel Moon Part One, Child of Fire, uh, Aquaman, and the Lost Kingdom. Uh, that came out. Uh, we're gonna be that, reviewing. Oh yeah, huh? huh. Uh, we're <laughs> it's be, gone already. We're gonna be reviewing uh, the the uh, supernatural drama All of Us Strangers, the Michael Mann biopic Ferrari, uh, the uh, adaptation of The Color Purple, the musical, uh, and uh, while we're at it, the Iron Claw, which I was very disappointed. I was very disappointed to find out it wasn't about Mecca Rodan. I'm so sorry. We've never had a Mecha Rodan. Although, uh, it makes the second film in recent memory, well, maybe not recent memory, just the second film I can think of that stars Mara Tierney and also features a guy doing a lot of claw stuff with his hand. Because the other was one was... The liar, Liar. Liar, Liar. Yeah, yes. good, good so, times. The Iron Claw. Okay. And, it's a weird thing to get typecast for. Yeah. Anyway. Um, what, what, I'm trying to figure out, I guess, I guess the biggest one, considering most people saw it, Mm. We like to start with the big one. Uh, would be Rebel Moon Part One: A Child of Fire. Uh, Netflix barely released this in theaters, yeah. Uh, so it's not like it raked in the cash, but yeah, a fair number of people saw it. So let's talk about Rebel Moon Part mm. One. Uh, this is the latest film from Zack Snyder, uh, a filmmaker who uh, you know some people are huge, huge fans of. Some people hate his guts. I think he's really hit and miss. Like, I think there's films uh, I really like a lot, and uh, then there's a lot I don't. But he's, it's not. He's mostly miss, and I think yeah. the people who uh, like to defend him uh, do like to point to his 2004 remake mm. of uh, Dawn of the Dead, which is good. Maybe which, his yeah, best film. It's pretty good. 
Yeah. Pretty good. It's a solid good, remake good, of Dawn of the good Dead. Three and a half star flick. That was 20 fucking years ago. <laughs> All right. It's been a while for this guy. Yeah. Well, but he's got other films that were maybe we're not so hot on them, but they mm. were a big deal when they came out. He made the 300, the mm. adaptation of the Frank Miller graphic novel about the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, which, I, I mean, let's, let's just be frank here. From a stylistic perspective, that yeah. movie hit like a truck of dynamite. Yeah, well, like, that was what a did, big fucking deal. When what, it came what, he, out. what he wanted to do, and it's not terribly creative what he did, was just uh, transpose uh, panels of Frank mm. Miller's comic book yeah. directly onto the screen in kind of these motion comics. Yeah, Sin uh, City so, had already come out, right? Um, uh, no, Sin City I think was after three hundred. Sin City after three hundred. Because the thing is, I don't, I never understood See, why I, like I, Frank I liked, Miller's comics are the mm. ones like they have to be panel accurate. Mm. Really, Frank Miller? I mean. Well, Some of them are good, but that, like I don't know. Style's man. pretty striking. I understand, and I, get, and I, and I think uh, there there's a lot more interesting things going on with sort of like color uh, and and, yeah. and just actual aesthetics with something like Sin City. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm looking up to see when when Sin City came out in comparison to yeah, Sin City was like 2005, and I think uh, 300 was 2001 or 2002. No, 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 because uh, because that was like when Dawn, Dawn of the Dead came out in like 2003. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. so no, it was definitely... I th- right. I'm 99% sure it was after Sin City. Right. Sin City was 2005. 300 was 2006. So it was very all close. Right, all right, all right. It was, was very, very close. Got I don't it, feel got bad. It, got it I don't, mixed up. I don't feel bad for getting it wrong enough. Uh, it was like 2005, 2009. I would have hmm. been like, okay, well... I, I've i watched most of Zack Snyder's films. I haven't mm. seen uh, the animated picture he did about the owls. Uh, the Legend um, of the Guardians, the Owls of Gahul. That one, yeah. Which, I gotta be honest here, that's one of his better movies. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen it in a while, but like mm. I remember watching it, like, this is a very effectively told story. There's only like one bit in that movie that like kind of like stood out to me as like this feels like a weird studio note mm. and it's like it's it's this really intense story about owl fascism but it but it's bad you know mm. it's, it's not like good owl fascism but but like then there's like a like a you know like a butch casting the sundance kid when they do raindrops keep falling on my head they mm. do a song by owl city <laughs> and it just it just sits there it just sits there like one can of beans in a cupboard, and it's like, are those beans? <laughs> Is the expiration date gone? I'm too lazy to check. We're just gonna leave it in the cupboard. Mm. And you think about it every time you open the cupboard, but you never actually pick up the beans. I could have come up with a good metaphor, but uh, I didn't. You could just say it sits there like a can of beans in a cupboard. Now, that's evocative yeah. enough. Well, uh, kind of, my point is, it stands out. Um, Zack Snyder, uh, his films tend to, uh, to my eye, mm. fetishize a certain kind of, like, human exceptionalism. Uh, Most of them. Which, which, which teeters so, yeah. on the fascist. Uh, that's certainly mm. true of 300, which, I, which is a celebration of, like, a fascist, yeah. fascist state and that kind of... Uh, the, the heroes are introduced as being so tough they like murder babies it's like yeah. no that's not that's not cool I don't think you're yeah. heroes for that and and you could argue but we see him murder babies yeah but the movie is flat out telling us that's awesome and then like these mm. guys are like glistening golden they're all Adonis's yeah, yeah gorgeous yeah. men and then like all of the uh, opponents the uh, non-white guys mm. that they're killing are uh, non-white guys mm. now they, and they're othered to no, to no end and the leader is very very queer coded if not mm. just outright queer and 
there's a lot going on there. It, it's worth noting that it, uh, you know, the film came out during the George W. Bush administration, mm-hmm. so the, there was a, a lot oh, of yeah. that kind of uh, uh, jingoism, jingoism, and mil- American military might against yeah. Middle he, Eastern characters. Yeah, he can't uh, really it was time yeah, kind of him. kind of a big part of that movie. Yeah. Uh, and he he also made a film called Sucker Punch, which I loathe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been meaning which, to rewatch that because I hear the director's cut is significantly different. Uh-huh. Uh, and I do at least want to give that a shot one well, of but, these days, but I haven't got around but to he, it. But here we are with you know, the same mm-hmm. deal with Ridley Scott. If, if it, the director's cut is always going to be the good one and the non-director's cut aren't, well, just release the good one. Well, you know, that's why, on the why studio, are we to be fair. I mean, that's not always the director's choice to release the crap cut first. Well, I, <laughs> you know, like, there's there's, there's a reason. I, I, director's I, cuts I'm thinking, aren't... I'm thinking the director's, director's cut The director's came, can only blame the studios so far. If this well, keeps happening, there's well, something going on. Because I think when, there's an element here where a lot... There's, like, three reasons why a director's cut exists. Mm. One, the director got screwed over by the studio, mm. which happens a lot. Hell, it happened with Justice League. Um... Then there was the uh, director was contractually obligated to submit a film with compromises. Like, it had to be under a certain time. It had to be under a certain rating. And if it didn't meet those goals, it had to be re-edited until it did. So those aren't the ideal version of the story as far as that director is concerned. And then there's the ones they just sort of slap together for money. Like, you're, yeah. we're just going to add some deleted footage whether or not it makes sense. Um, and there are other reasons, too. Um... You know, quite famously, George Lucas, you know, released the special editions, you know, partly to do some new visual effects work, partly to cut his wife out of the profits, or his (laughs) ex-wife, rather, um, rather notoriously. Um, So there are other reasons as well. But the thing is, is that when you're... In the case of Rebel Moon, which I want to talk about some of Zack Snyder's other films first, but in the case of Rebel Moon, a lot of people are saying, like, oh, we shouldn't even really be... judging this one too harshly because a director's cut is going to come out it's on netflix there's no reason you you, you don't need to cut it down for time for the theatrical release you don't need to cut it down for a rating for the theatrical release and there's no reason to sully the hopefully good name of the movie by releasing an inferior cut just so you can release a better cut later Mm. That that's absolutely baffling to me in this context. But in any case, yeah, he did he did Sucker Punch, and that was a big swing. You know, can't argue that. Well, um, he it, did it, he, he did the Watchmen, which was considered, we don't we well, don't have to talk about the Watchmen. Um, well, real fast because it, it was really ambitious. It was a, it mm. was it's considered or it had been at least sort of the Citizen Kane of superhero comics. It was considered unfilmable. People said that this was like, you know, the greatest comic story ever told. I'm not sure too, I agree with too, that, but too it's... Too bleak and violent, I think, yeah. was well, the, and, the complaint. And, and artful as well. Mm-hmm. It's, an, it's an incredibly told tale. Parts of it, I think, have dated, but still, incredibly told tale. And everyone was like, oh my God, this could be the film. This could be the film that, like breaks superhero movies out of this like action movie mold and like gets people to see them as real art. And then the movie came out and some people liked it and some people didn't and then we didn't talk about it again for 15 years. And it's been it was, 15 years. It was one weekend movie. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's they, so they, amazing to they me. They spent like, like, so all these much years effort. putting it into this gigantic movie and, and, and people saw it one week and just didn't care. There are parts of it that are like kind of really well adapted. There are parts of it that are not. I think the changes to the ending are catastrophic personally, but... 
I mean, it's it's a it's a film. But really, the thing that Zack Snyder is best known for now, of course, are the DC superhero movies, uh, Man mm. of Steel, uh, which I think we can safely call a mixed bag. I'm I'm there's a lot of things I really like about it. Oh yeah, why? Yeah, I think this. I okay. <laughs> first off, I think Henry Cavill is great. I think Amy Adams right. is great. I think the score is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I really, really uh, admire how fucking bizarre they made Krypton. Like, <laughs> what is Krypton? Oh, it's a it's a place full of uh, dragons and uh, personal rocket ships shaped like dildos. And I'm like, <laughs> I remember watching this in the theater with you, and I was like watching this Krypton stuff. I'm like. This movie could be awesome. <laughs> I'm very much on board with well, here, this. Well, here's the issue with uh, with Zack Snyder, just as a filmmaker, is yeah. he, he's preoccupied with visual style, yes. and he doesn't even know what ideas he wants to put into his movies. And, uh, and I, I he I, does. I, feel, I just don't think they're very interesting. I, I feel like he likes to faint in the direction of, you know, we, we have to fight for hope, and mm. charity is a virtue, but these are things he's cribbing from other sources. This mm. is like comic book boilerplate dialogue and ideas. He, he doesn't have concepts mm. in his movies at all, except for the things he's clearly not intending. Uh, I want to go back to Sucker Punch for a second, because mm. that's a movie that uh, replaces sex with violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a movie about uh, young women who are held in sexual slavery in this fantasy brothel in a parallel mm-hmm. universe somewhere, and... Uh, the main character, who's only ever called Baby Doll, uh, is said to be, like, the best exotic dancer in the world. Like, she'll dance for you Mm. and you'll lose your mind with lust. And whenever she begins her dance, we just see the actress, uh, um, Emily Browning was the actress's name, kind of sways back and forth a little bit. She's in this, like, Catholic schoolgirl, like, kind of stripper wear. Mm -hmm. And we zoom into her head, and instead of seeing her dance... We see what she's fantasizing about. Uh-huh. And it's all like violent anime fantasies where she's like wielding a sword or fighting robot Nazis. And like really this... anachronistic and strange. Yeah. It takes place in like the 30s, which is like yeah, all it's... these concepts haven't been in, like put into the consciousness yet, and, which is odd. Yeah, she's tapping into these weird, yeah, this kind of uh, mm. pop culture iconography that she wouldn't have access to. <clears throat> And all it all that is saying to me is Zack Snyder is much more interested in meaningless fantasy violence mm-hmm. than he is in something as basic as human sexuality. Well, there, there's there's a counter argument to that, mm-hmm. which I'll grant you. Uh, is you know the it's a film about women who are being uh, taken advantage of yeah. uh, by men. Should we really indulge in the male fantasy of seeing them dance? And is it not uh, more? Uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, empowering mm-hmm. uh, to replace that with these uh, fantasy tales of uh, liberation mm-hmm. and heroism. And I think there's something to be said for that, but I also think that that's. He doesn't go any deeper than that. Mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly surfacey. So, and, and, and that's, that's, and that's, and that's a problem. Zack Snyder think, in a nutshell. I think a lot of his stuff is. I do think that there is. He's one of those guys where he doesn't have quite as pr- pronounced a visual style as. I don't know, someone like Tim Burton or like mm. Terry Gilliam, where, um, <clears throat> you know, you're, you're going to be fascinated by everything you see. He definitely has, uh, he loves his slow motion, he loves his uh. speed ramping, but he does have a generally good sense for creating the occasional epic image, like one really great shot of Batman uh-huh. that will stick with you, even if the rest of the scene is a vapor. Uh, and I just feel like he's just one of the guys where, like, I just want him to have better material. 
Like, maybe that's the problem? Because I do think that he's definitely... You know, like I, 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 there's a, he's an instrument that can be wielded, I think. He's mm-hmm. definitely got something. He's got panache. I, and I just want to see him use that to greater effect than he has because I see moments of greatness in some of his movies. I think the uh, director's cut of Justice League right. uh, is a mess. I think it's the first hour is mostly filler. <laughs> I think the whole post-apocalyptic ending is adolescent nonsense. But in the middle there, there's some really good stuff. I love all that new stuff with Cyborg, where it actually challenges, like, what is heroism? Is it really punching people? Or could it be, hey, I'm a techno-organic being. I'm going to hack into a bank and give someone who actually deserves it a financial windfall. Mm. And I'm like, yes, that's interesting. Yes, do that. That's so much more interesting than the punchy bits. And there's so many punchy bits that it just becomes numbing. So I do think there there are some interesting things there. And so I was curious about Rebel Moon mm-hmm. because Rebel Moon is, a, and I'm going to use this in air quotes, original uh, concept. It started off as a pitch to Lucasfilm for a Star Wars film or spinoff that would have taken the Star Wars sort of aesthetic universe and filtered it through the story of Seven Samurai, much like the original Star Wars was. It's more complicated than this, but essentially Flash Gordon by way of Akira Kurosawa's Hidden Fortress. Mm. Um, That is not a bad pitch. It wasn't a bad pitch when Corman made it in Battle Beyond the Stars in the early 80s. John Sayles wrote that movie. John Sayles wrote that. James Horner did the music. James Cameron did the visual effects. It wasn't exclusively James Cameron, but he worked on him. Like that's a hell of a production, and I rewatched it recently. It's pretty good, actually. Like it's it's yeah, it's well, it's silly, but it's well, it's, it's it's got energy and it's got creativity. It is, and that's what I like about it. There's yeah. uh, like first of all, you have Sybil Danning as a space Valkyrie. Yeah, you get a point for that. Um, and then it has weird concepts like there's an alien species who communicates through temperature. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Um, and they like share a brain. So there's one alien bites a, a hot dog and all f- like four other aliens can taste it at the same time. Yeah. Uh, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Science fiction concept. And that's one thing. And that's something that was really cool about some of like the early films, even if they weren't great, mm. that kind of ripped off Star Wars was they didn't just do Star Wars. They took some of Star Wars images or like we'll put a lightsaber in a movie or something but like other than that we're going to use this as an excuse to be weird and creative Mm. i was hoping that we would see Zack snyder get weird and creative he's not weird or creative he's not and that's the thing that's Uh, frustrating i'm watching rebel moon and like there are moments that are kind of interesting but 98 percent of this is star wars and seven samurai it's not like it's a Mm. pastiche of these millions of things that he likes like george lucas did with the original uh, well, and, and what George Lucas did, he took a pastiche of the million things he likes, yeah. but he kind of filtered them through his own sensibility and mm-hmm. made something that felt unique. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's it, not it's, just having influences, you can see it's the how you remix them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Zack Snyder, I don't think, is the kind of filmmaker who thinks that way. I think he is interested in... Uh, cool-looking visuals and hot and, you know, like, high-octane action. Yeah. But, I, you know, I'll I've say seen, this, if he is interested in those things... All he's delivering is cool visuals and high octane yeah, action. And, and, he, and he writes these screenplays that have a lot of heady, deep sounding dialogue, but they don't actually present any real ideas. Yeah. Uh, it's it's just sort of lip service to something that feels philosophical when really he's not encountering or engaging with any kind of concepts. No, he's so he's, all we have yeah. are uh, his visuals. 
Now, it, his visuals are weirdly elaborate and yet somehow generic at the same time. Yeah. Where he's presenting very basic adolescent sci-fi ideas just wrapped up in a different kind of uh, 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 skin. Like, he, he reskins yeah. basic things to the point... Yeah. But for example, not so dramatically where it looks like something new and interesting. Well, for example, there's a scene... And we'll talk about the plot mm-hmm. in a second. But there's a scene in Rebel Moon where uh, our... The movie is about uh, someone who lives on, like, this isolated backwater planet. Mm -hmm. And they were a soldier, and they have since retired and are trying to live anonymously. And then uh, the evil empire comes in, Mm -hmm. and uh, they start fucking shit up. And then uh, this former soldier uh, teams up with... Sophia Boutella, yeah. They team up with a uh, a farmer uh, to go on an adventure... Uh, off world, and the first stop is at uh, the Mos Eisley Cantina, uh, where it is. It, it, it's it, it's, it's, it's a, literally it's bar, the Mos Eisley yeah. Cantina. It's it's the bar. It's got a bunch of weird aliens in it, uh, and the biggest difference. They meet Han Solo there for Christ's sake. It's played by Charlie Hunnam in it, this movie. It's literally yeah. Han Solo. Like he's not playing. Like he's got Han Solo with an accent. Like that's it. That's what we've got. But here's the difference, and this is the moment because I'm watching this and I'm like, this is derivative, but. There's there's an earlier scene with like a sexual assault where I'm like I'm not sure why you thought we needed that, but mm-hmm. at the very least bad guys were doing it and the hero stops it. So I'm like I'm I'm gonna try to move past that. Here's the part where the movie lost me <laughs> because they're doing oh. the Seven Samurai thing. The evil empire shows up to the small farming yeah. community so and they say the, the Seven Samurai story yeah. uh, is a, a, a village that's barely surviving, a farming village, yeah. uh, who is regularly beset by bandits uh, yeah. right when the harvest occurs. Yeah. And uh, they, they take they everything know, and leave them to starve. Yeah, and they know the bandits are coming. Their, their harvest is coming soon, and they say, we have a short amount of time to find somebody who can defend us from these bandits, because we can't do it ourselves. But we can't so afford they, anything yeah, but, good, so we need to get, like... We're impoverished, so they go into town, and they get, like... The worst possible samurai. They only get seven of them. <laughs> yeah. And it's up to these seven samurai, who are all interesting characters. Oh, they're in their great own characters, right. yeah. And, and, you know, a big part of the movie is, like, meeting these samurai, introducing them in interesting ways. Yeah, they all have different skills, etc. Yeah, uh, and then they, and they all, all try to, to figure out a way to defend yeah, this about town. About half, halfway through the movie, they all get back to the yeah. town, and they have to figure out how to defend yeah. it. You've seen village. a bunch of life. So, um... It's been ripped off so many times because but it's, it's but that re- good a story. It's, it's reliable. You can yeah. you can reskin that and put it in different contexts, and you can get an entirely different story out of it. Galaxy Quest is also Seven Samurai. <laughs> Otherwise, the movies couldn't be more different. But by God, the stories are the same. Um. Uh, but anyway, so they go to Mos Eisley Cantina, and just like in Star Wars, uh, the farmer is accosted at the bar uh, by someone who's trying to start some shit. Yeah. And you were calling Star Wars that the guy's trying to start some shit, it gets violent, and Obi-Wan cuts his arm off. Mm-hmm. Perhaps unnecessary, but at least he leaves him alive. Here's what Zack Snyder does to that scene in Rebel Moon. We're going to do that exact same scene, except the guy accosting the farmer uh, is a gay sexual predator who looks like the, like, creepy gay, like, demonized cartoon character that, like, Mm. uh, homophobic people put in memes. And he wants to fuck that guy, and he won't take no for an answer, and it leads to a big fight, and the heroes murder him. 
You had to go out of your way to do that. that that's, a, that's not just a random choice you did on the day. You had to go, you had to make the makeup, you had to come up with the costume, you had to cast the character, and it's like, I just want to do... Someone said, I want to do the most likely cantina scene, but I want to demonize a queer person. And I'm like, why? Well, what, what does that add? Have, having what, what are you doing here? What, how does that have, make it fun? What, how does that make it yeah, interesting? How does I, it make it I have, I I have no issues with awesome queer villains sure. or, or bad guys or, or just passing ruffians who are yeah, queer. Uh, but what I have a problem with yeah. is uh, this is a pattern, isn't it? Mm. We've seen this from Zack Snyder before, his demonization of queer people. So he's just doing it again mm. 20 years later. Nothing's changed with this guy. Yeah. And uh, we're specifically talking about 300. 300, In case you're wondering yeah. what the context yeah. was for that. So, like, yeah, it's, it's weird. It's a choice. And I can't get past it. And honestly, kind of made me grumpy for a lot of it. Uh, but I kept saying, okay, listen. You know, a lot of like filmmakers are going back to like storytelling tropes and things from the 1980s. I don't think we need to go back to a genre film that people kind of like, but there's like a couple of homophobic scenes you have to apologize for and warn people about. I think we can let that trope die. <laughs> I don't know why you felt well, the need yeah. to go back to that, but like, I was like, okay, maybe it's just I, this uh, one thing and we'll have to talk about it, but maybe the rest of the movie is okay. Mm. And then it's just meet some random people, get in oh. a little adventure. It's occasionally visually interesting Usually it's not, and then there's a really sort of confusingly edited action climax, and then we're out. And I get it, it's the first half of the story, I understand that, but it should function as its own chapter at least the, the structure is very is is the basic seven samurai bit it's yeah. where they're meeting each character one by one mm. uh it's not it's not unfair to compare this to kurosawa because he's doing the same story he's calling you shot so, i mean like, so uh, now it might be a little unfair because kurosawa is one of the best filmmakers to have ever lived true. and Zack snyder isn't well, most people aren't, to be fair. Yeah. Most people working today so, as filmmakers aren't. So let's let's just be fair about that. Even the samurai that don't get a lot of dialogue or don't get a lot of screen time, mm-hmm. we understand who we who they are when we meet them. Mm-hmm. We understand their character. And we understand not their, their, uh, not their and also, description, who they really are, what and they're also, about. And also, and this is vital, they kind of explain to each other why they've agreed to help these farmers mm-hmm. who can't afford to pay them. Yeah, uh, they have a justification yeah. for it. Yeah, this Sofia Butella and the other guy from Farming World. Yeah, uh, go from planet to planet and just say, "I know where we can find a warrior." Mm. And we go to that planet, and it's you know interestingly designed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, there one in one world. This guy tames a raven cat flying it's basically thing. a griffin it's, it's a space it's a, griffin it's a space griffin it's like yeah. tames a space griffin there's another one where um this cyborg warrior lady fights a giant spider monster mm. um i think the spider monster was played by jenna malone was it i think so the spider mon- i like the design spider of the spider was cool, monster. right I think we, we, everyone likes a good spider monster yeah yeah and, and you know it was animated well yeah, it's that part, that part fun, was fun. fun spider yeah. monster um 
But what's mi- and so we get to see like how they fight, you know, yeah. what, where they are in their world, in, yeah. in their life. There's and one how where they fighting. get lazy, and it's when they meet Jaiman Hansu, who's this like oh, old just a drunk guy in an alleyway. They say like, yeah. oh yeah, he's been working as a gladiator. I'm like, oh cool, we're gonna get like a really cool gladiator scene from one of the guys from Gladiator. Cool, I'm down. Let's do it because it's Jaiman Hansu. And then they get there, and I guess it's his day off or something because he's just drunk on a rock. And yeah, it's like, and they just pick him up and yeah. wash him off, and, and I'm that's like, it. it's a little anticlimactic. What know. we're missing from every single one of these scenes <laughs> is. Yeah. Will you join us? Here's why you should join us. Mm. Uh, I know you have every reason not to, but we have mm. a we have noble intent. Yeah, they, they don't say any of that to any of these characters. They just mm. pick them up and they come along. Uh, so we don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. We don't know why they've joined along. We don't know why they're helping the Rebel Moon. To, to be, to be all, fair. They, all we know is that instead mm. of bandits this time, it's. The Empire Space from Star Nazis. Wars. They call them the Imperium, but they wear yeah. Nazi uniforms. Yeah, it's it's not subtle. Uh, um, to, to be fair, I think there's some exceptions to what you said. Um, uh, there's some discussion with the Han Solo character about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is this a fool's errand? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, But more than that, there are actually two actual rebel leaders. One of whom was played by Ray Fisher, from, mm-hmm. who was Cyborg in Justice League. Um, and when they get to them... It's like, oh yeah, you're actually rebel leaders. That's why we came to find you. Maybe you could like come with your army or something like that. You know, that'd be great because we don't have to have seven, right? Wouldn't it be great if we had hundreds? What are we doing here? <laughs> and then they're like, ah, oh, yeah, but that sounds really hard. So <laughs> we're not gonna. Yeah. And it's like, really? I would have thought you would be the ones to like want to do this on principle. And then they're like, okay, well, we'll have a bit of a speech. And I'm like, okay, cool. Um... And weird choices in the, general. The only the only thing so I can tell that uh Zack Snyder is not interested in these people as characters. He's interested in uh world building. I think he's interested he's in them interested as like design. iconography. Yeah, like, he he likes to pose like them like action figures. Cards. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the only things he's really interested in is making the villains seem really nasty. So we have, is it Ed Screen who plays like yeah. the main Nazi guy? Yeah. And, uh, oh, and who's the other bad guy? Um, much more interesting actor. Uh, 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 Corey Stoll. Is, is oh, no, no, he's not. No, Corey Stoll's a good guy. He was the guy running the farm community at the beginning with the beard. Oh, I thought he was one of the villains. No, no, no. He's uh, he's he's a good guy. Things don't uh, well, go well for him. Ed, Ed Screen, he's a, he's a lot like... Um, the Kurtwood Smith character from uh, Fortress, the, the Stuart Gordon movie, in that he has a lot of pl- plugs on his uh, uh-huh. on his torso, and he, he's constantly like plugging weird things into his body. He's into T- tentacle porn, basically. He, he he plugs tentacles into sort of apertures on his chest, and he also has like a space hookah that he like plugs into his. <laughs> so it's like really ridiculous looking space hookah on one scene. I also appreciate uh, that it's the far future. They have all of these ray guns and stuff, and his weapon of choice is a whomping stick. He's just gonna <laughs> womp you with it like thunk. Like that's it. And, like and we still, the, it, it, the, you know what? It ain't broke. Don't fix it. And I, and I feel like we spend just as much time with him as we do with the hero characters and he's not up to anything. Like he has no. No, he's just evil. He's just an evil guy. Yeah, he doesn't have a, a and in fact, purpose his, or the whole ethos. The whole plan of the Imperium when they come to this uh, rebel moon uh, is we, they're, they're literal farmers. It's like you can make spaceships Mm-hmm. What do you need grain for? Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, they don't, they, 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 you could totally have updated this to make sense in a sci-fi context. Mm. Like, oh, uh, we're out on the far reaches of the galaxy, and our energy source is increasingly rare out here, and it's hard to get shipments. Yeah, so, so we, we need want whatever you, rare you, thing you're mining. You're mining yeah. this thing. That would have made sense. Instead, it's just it's the one thing they literally live from Seven Samurai, and it's 
raw, unrefined grain. (laughs) What are you... We will rule the galaxy with wheat! Like, Like, can you imagine, like, all those soldiers, and it's like, okay, yeah, no, it's good, thank God, we haven't eaten in weeks. Oh, what have we got? A bowl of wheat. Is it... Well, it's it's good. A, I'll get out my space mortar and pestle and start making flour. I, it's it's, like, uh, I, I need, like, I'm going to get scurvy and shit, dude. I need, like, <laughs> some oranges or something. What are we oh, doing? This will go good with my replicated duck l'orange. You know, it's... It, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and uh, even in, like... I don't don't usually complain about this kind of thing. I'm okay suspending my my disbelief. That's why we're here. Kind of a fantasy. I showed up to suspend my disbelief. Yeah, and even if it's a little absurd, I'm really willing to go with it. But we're very forgiving of that. You know, if even if it were like an evil empire, a space empire beams down to this agrarian moon. All they have is farming, and merely out of cruelty, they say we will take half your half of your grain. That would be fine. Just Just in a show of power. That's all. We don't need the grain. That would be fine. That would make more sense. But there's a lot of talk, like a lot of talk, at the beginning of this movie where they talk about that they're running out of grain and they need grain and the empire needs grain it's like, all so so much it's talk just about a macguffin grain. man it's just it's a reason the mo- to be motivating here. factor you can skim through that <coughs> uh, there there isn't a choice in this movie that i was at all interested in yeah uh, some of the aesthetics are okay and fun they're really yeah. slick he clearly has a lot of money he's working yeah. with I-, I will say this i think some of the cast is making a meal of this I think Charlie, Charlie Hunnam, Hunnam is, having, is making a He's having fun. He's mm-hmm. getting a fun character. He hasn't had a chance to play in a while. Good for him. And in fact, I'm increasingly enjoying Charlie Hunnam's acting mm-hmm. career. Um, I, he was really fun in The Gentleman, for example. He got to play a more like weird, erudite British mobster. And I, I liked his performance. I thought he was good. So I like him here. He's good. I think Sophia Batella is um, a very strong action lead. Mm-hmm. I think the material isn't great, but a great action lead doesn't necessarily need good material. Like, half of Jason Statham's best movies are bad movies. <laughs> like, that's not why we're here. We're here to see Jason Statham whoop ass. And I I think Sophia Batella, I'm convinced by her ass-whooping abilities. I appreciate that Zack Snyder isn't going out of his way to sexualize her in any unnecessary mm-hmm. uh, or prurient way. Good, good. Like, a lot of, uh, you know, you look at something like... Um, Atomic Blonde? Well, Atomic Blonde is an example, although mm. one could argue there was a point to that, but I was thinking more along the lines of, like, Mila Jovovich in the Resident Evil movies, where mm. there's a lot of fetishization. Yeah, I put think her in that those, is, like, yeah. leather straps and those kinds yeah. of outfits. But, yeah. yeah, but, like, here we're not... we're that That is avoided, and I think she's... You know, the character itself, seen it, but she's doing it really well. I think as, like a demo reel for Sofia Butella being an action movie star yeah, sold honestly well, but, but she, we we were already sold cuz she played a, like a, a killer in that Kingsman movie yep she was great uh, in that she was but here's the deal she, she was she was, she was, she was a, the was, mummy that's true okay well first off that mummy movie it was not her fault she did her job but that mm. mummy movie sucked and also she played the villain and in the Kingsman, she also played the villain. And in Atomic Blonde, she played like a spy who gets mm. murdered unceremoniously. Like this is her get taking the lead. She was the I'm lead in, in that movie Climax, the Gaspar Noe film. 
You see, it's, it's not an action movie. I'm talking about action movies. Right. I'm talking, it's a different kind of acting. And she's good in that Gaspar Noe movie, which I don't like. <laughs> but again, I think she's really, really great. And I, I hope this leads to more things for her. Um, but um, yeah, it's just, it's so rote. It doesn't take its premise as a launching pad to do creative things it takes its premise as a mission statement and then just does those things mm. and the only things that it really adds are things that i don't think are good ideas like sexual assault and homophobia why was that important to you why did you think that made it cooler i don't understand it i don't understand why you thought like that would like put a good taste in our mouths and <laughs> make, make us with you on this journey um yeah I just, it, it did not work for me um so yeah, it was a bummer. Just, just, I mean, free. I, just please watch Seven Samurai. Yeah. <laughs> or if you want a science fiction twist, watch Battle Beyond the Stars. Or from Galaxy Quest. Or Galaxy Quest. Yeah, that's a comedy uh, version, but, but it's still good, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's been done. It's been done um, a million times. It's a good premise. There's nothing yeah, wrong um, with the premise, but you have to make it your own. I think when. I'm wondering what we're doing here. You know, mm. Zack Snyder has these big ambitious plans, these gigantically long movies, and mm. he's saying nothing. Mm. He's putting a lot of time and energy into this. He's building these huge sets and coming up with all these like, elaborate special effects remember, remember, in service of nothing. Remember in Army uh, of the Dead? The, we didn't mention this one. It's like zombie heist movie. Good yeah. pitch. Not a great movie, but good pitch. Um, and there was like, we're, we have to like break into Las Vegas. It has been overrun by zombies and cordoned off. And we have to rob a vault before they nuke the place. Again, great pitch. Just solid genre movie pitch. Give that to Walter Hill. I'm there. Well, uh, I, I, even Zack Snyder. I don't. I don't entirely dislike that movie. But like, here's here's like what was really interested him in that was like, there's a couple of zombies in that movie where when they shoot them, they're robots. Right. We never, never stop and talk that about that. We never, and the whole thing is in a sequel. We'll get to it. And I'm like, no. <laughs> No, can don't we, do that. that like I want. That's really weird. Get to it now, that's the please. Good stuff. Yeah. That's the most. That that's what you're excited about. Why are you doing this? Like, just I, I, I have trouble wrapping my head around some of their creative choices, and mm. and I don't think they added up to much, which is unfortunate. Yeah, and they're not. Yeah, yeah. And if it was just blithely sort of uh, um, formulaically entertaining. I would be like, okay, it'd be better than this. I'd, I'd be yeah. fine with that. It's not, you know, like that can be fine. I mm. don't, it does, you don't have to break the mold. You just have to. When the mold is done, you have to be able to have a thing that works. Yeah, I, like, I, I don't think I, we got I that. would love to hear because I've never heard anybody really articulate mm. why they're they're drawn to Zack Snyder as a visual stylist. I kind of get it, mm -hmm. just because he does have a unique style. But what ideas are people getting from something like Justice League? Well, I mean, uh, it's, it's been articulated. I just don't think people say like I hear all these reasons, mm. and I'm not gonna. Well, I don't have it in front of me. But like, the thing. Just, I haven't heard those. I, I have, yeah. and it's one of those things where I'm like, no, I get it. That's that's not the subtext. That's the text. Okay, that's the thing yeah. that frustrates me. Like, I had people explain Sucker Punch to me, and I'm like, no, I get it. Mm. It's not complicated. I, I, I'm just not impressed. I'm just not <laughs> impressed. Like, you can get it. You don't, it's not, everyone's like, no, you don't understand Batman v Superman. Like, no, I understand it. I just don't think it's good. <laughs> like, it's not about it's not getting it. Confused. It's not about unlocking yeah, yeah. a puzzle here. It's Sometimes it's just a matter of taste. And this mm. is what it boils down to. Because if anyone's listening to us and you're a huge Zack Snyder fan and you're really, really pissed right now, uh, fair. 
you know what? It's not our job to share your opinion. It's not your responsibility to share ours. We're not trying to, like, tell the world what to think here. It's about taste. And what it boils down to is we we didn't find this delicious. We didn't find it in yeah, good taste, yeah, yeah. perhaps. And we're just explaining why. And I've had people explain why they find it delicious, why they find it in good taste. And when they were done, I still didn't like it. I see where you're coming from, but I'm not... And it's not a matter of being sold or convinced. Like, I agree that that's there. I just don't think that's good, or I don't think it's enough. And yet, you know what's worse? <laughs> what's worse than Rebel Moon? Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Oh, golly, no. I disagree. Oh, no. Uh, no, 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 no. I I would... Okay. I'd, I'd rather not watch either of them again, well, but if true, I had to, true. I'd probably uh, watch Rebel Moon. Uh, James Wan is a much more interesting filmmaker uh, oh yeah! In terms of yeah, personality and making just sort of watchable blockbuster entertainment. Yeah, anyone uh, who makes malignant, that's an interesting yeah. person. Uh, and you can tell uh, in in the first Aquaman, he kind of rolled with the weirdness of the premise. It's about mm-hmm. you know the king of Atlantis, and there's this yeah. elaborate mm-hmm. undersea kingdom full of you know glowing seahorses that people ride mm-hmm. on, and everybody's voices are like distorted and their hair is floating through the air yeah. and you got these big name actors to wear these r- completely ridiculous mm-hmm. superhero costumes. Yeah, and everyone's just beating and, the and shit and out of each other and they're fish monsters. And fi- fight and, like, about who gets to be the ocean master. Like, it's absurd. It's a huge fetch quest. And you yeah. know what it is? It's it's Conan the Destroyer yeah, underwater. It, and, and that's a good pitch. I would also and, like. And the, I also support like, that bitch. Like Aquaman. Oh, he can talk to fish. Yeah, you know what else he can talk to? Cthulhu. Yeah, who lives under the ocean. Who's voiced know. by Julie Andrews? Julie Andrews. <laughs> that was so, a choice. So he made Aquaman. It's completely crazy. It's yeah. utterly stupid, and yeah. it's a lot of fun. And it was it, a huge hit. I, I liked uh, it a lot when it came out. I rewatched it since, and I, I soured on it a little. I, yeah. I was a little enthusiastic. If I went back in time to that review, I would maybe tell myself, you're a little enthusiastic. Dial yeah, back. I, I, <laughs> I, I'm not going to sell it as as a good flick, but no. I will sell it as, as a fun time at the movies. It's, it's a reasonably good matinee, yeah. And when you compare it to the other films in the series it came from, the mm-hmm. whole mm-hmm. DC universe that it's was all Zack Snyder shit. Well, it's uh, not all it's, Zack Snyder shit. There's also some other shit that had nothing to do with Zack Snyder. I, I suppose not, yeah. but uh, most of those movies are pretty bad. Um, yeah, there's a couple of highlights, but yeah. yeah. Sh- Shazam is one of the best super Superheroes ever, superhero movies ever made. Period. I'm not going to fight you on that. Um, I, I'll go to bat for Wonder Woman, even though its ending is a bit, dis- a bit, yeah, bit disappointing. I, I think I think the, the first two thirds build to something interesting that it doesn't do. Yeah, uh, so it, I was a little it, little let down by it, Wonder it Woman. It reeks of studio interference right at the end. Yeah, I, I, I put money on that. Um, so that one's good. I I love Birds of Prey. You don't, but I no, do. Yeah, I'm not not a fan. Um, and Aquaman is kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and again, I'll defend some of Man of Steel, and I'll defend some of the Snyder Cut of Justice League, even though mm. it's not canon. Um, but, uh, yeah, but it's been rough. It's been rough. This is the fifteenth and final film in this series. Oh they yeah, are... Blue Beetle was okay. Blue Beetle is okay. It's a little yeah. generic, but okay. Yeah. Uh, this is the final movie. Mm-hmm. Aquaman and Lost Kingdom. I appreciate that they're not trying to wrap up the series. They're not yeah. bringing in guest stars. They're not setting anything up. They're just yeah. making a movie with Aquaman. It's just the last one's just going to be like, an Aquaman yeah. adventure, and that will be it. And uh, and golly, nobody cares. No. Uh, James Wan is not nearly as invested this time around. You can tell. Uh, it feels a lot more 
plot forward than getting into the crazy undersea stuff. Well, what's weird about the plot mm. is it's the same plot as the last one, but they switched out some of the characters. So like more, it's the same villain. It, well, it's the same uh, with one of the same. Uh, yeah. Yaya Abdul Mateen plays Black Manta. Yeah. Only this time he finds a magical trident mm-hmm. in an undersea grotto somewhere. Hey, it's the undersea grotto for you was, and for me. I have to fight not to call this film. Aquaman in the Undersea Kingdom. Right. It's the Lost Kingdom. But Undersea fi- Kingdom was an adventure serial from the 30s or 40s, and mm-hmm. I did some of the episodes on MST3K, and it's kind of burned into our brains. <laughs> but yeah, Black Manta finds a magical trident, and he gets possessed by the ghost of like some evil green monster. Yeah, and, and he's going and to... And, yeah. and the, the evil green monster says, hey, if you use this forbidden element, it's called Orichalcum. Yeah. If you use enough, and they say it a lot. In the oh, movie, yeah. If you use the orichalcum, it's so bad for the environment yeah. that it will instantly make the polar ice caps melt. Yeah. And that happens to be where the body of this green ghost is living, and if he's thawed out, he gets to come back to life. Cool. Bit of a bit of a stretch. But the, anyway... The, this is the plot of, like, a Captain Planet episode. It is. But here's the thing. It, all of that's just a reason mm. for people to leave the house. Uh, structurally... The, I'm just going to describe the first movie for a second. Um, Aquaman is kind of unhappy where he is. He gets pulled along onto an adventure he, he to stop like, a bad guy. Doesn't like being king. Yeah, yeah he's going to stop an undersea evil undersea king from doing under evil undersea king stuff. And he goes on a bunch of fetch quests with a character who he doesn't like at first, and then they grow to care about each other by the end. And then there's a big fight. Uh, in that one, the main bad guy was uh, Aquaman's brother, King Orm, played by Patrick Wilson. Uh, and the person he went on the fetch quest with was Mira, played by Amber Heard. In this movie, same plot, except the main bad guy is now Black Manta. And instead of going on fetch quests with Mira and getting to like her over time, mm-hmm. he's going on fetch quests with King Orm. Who was imprisoned in the last one, he has to break out. Yeah. It's the same mm. plot. They just change the justifications a little bit. Mm. The only, the biggest difference is that uh, Mira, uh, again, played by Amber Heard, uh, who was this, you know, every bit as uh, powerful and confident and smarter than Aquaman. She was a great character in the first one. Not, not an amazingly brilliant character, mm. but certainly a charismatic one. Um they, they they cut her down in post so bad. Like yeah. it, there, well, This the, was rumored, but you watched the movie and you could have guessed if you'd never heard it. Because she... Here's what she's allowed to do in this movie. She gives birth to babies. She does laundry. <laughs> she sits dutifully next to Aquaman while he does things. And uh, early on in the movie, she's in an action sequence and gets like knocked unconscious quickly. That's it. Yeah, uh, That's you, what she's been reduced I, to. I'm guessing that uh, the studio was afraid how audiences would react to Amber Heard, who is a little persona non grata, both she and Johnny Depp, after their rather bizarrely public falling out and mm-hmm. you know, the, the televised trial that they went through and the, you know just the, the horrors of their relationship. Um, what you think of Amber Heard is your business. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people don't think too highly of Amber Heard at this point, or maybe the filmmakers just don't want people... Uh, piling up on her being cruel to her so uh, they just cu- sliced as much of they c- as they could of her out of this movie that I, I love your really like optimistic noble intentions excuse for that mm. as opposed to just uh we know our fan base is toxic and we're trying to yeah, get well, them to shut up as much as possible yeah. uh, and i'm not 
I'm not here for any of that shit. But mm. regardless, even regardless of all of that external drama, mm. just watch the movie. Their attempt to ameliorate something by cutting her out of the movie as much as possible hurts the movie. All of the scenes she's in are incredibly awkwardly edited. Mm. It really does. There's like whole scenes where like, okay, oh my god, like our whole family is in crisis right now, and like Nicole Kidman who plays Aquaman's mother and King Orm's mother, she's like, okay. It's up to you two to save the family and to save Atlantis. Mira's right there, off camera, just ignored by everyone. Mm. Like, removing the outside context, just in context of the story, everyone's suddenly a sexist dick. Hmm. And it doesn't help anything. Um, Also doesn't help anything, almost every other choice in this movie. Uh, It's... Really, it, it's edited with a hatchet. Like, there's a lot of confusing editing in it. It's um, the plot is boring and formulaic, and I don't care about any of it. There's all these weird moments where you're like, there's a scene in the movie where Aquaman and King Orm they have like underwater superpowers. Fine, uh, they're with a mad scientist who's increasingly less mad, played by Randall Park. Uh, and he's starting to see the error of his ways. And then there's a huge explosion. And our two superheroes get, like, the wind knocked out of them. And then, like, two scenes later, we see that Randall Park is fine. Mm-hmm. He was right there, too. <laughs> How is he better off than the superheroes? There's these weird little things that I don't know if anyone's thinking about it. But the movie is not intelligent enough, nor quick enough, nor entertaining enough to get my mind not thinking about these things. It, it, it's not good <laughs> and I, I, I want to get into like the chemistry between like Jason Momoa and Patrick Wilson they're both fun actors but the whole movie is hey this genocidal maniac who is like knocked out of power and put in prison he's a pretty good guy if you get a beer with him yeah, and I'm like yeah, well, that's a choice I don't know about that I'm not I'm not as with this redemption arc as you are movie yeah and even even the writing on Aquaman himself is pretty pretty lazy. Uh, in, in the other movies, he's like where he was starring opposite other superhero movies, like the yeah. Justice League film and all the yeah. rest. Uh, Jason Momoa uh, provided sort of a counterpoint to the very serious characters. He was a little bit more of a like a like a biker who just a, a, yeah in, a, you know? a pirate biker guy. He's kind of yeah. like the tough guy. He was the muscle. Uh, and then there was the Flash. He was like the comic relief character, and the other three were well, no, boring yeah. lead: yeah. Uh, yeah. Batman, Superman, and, uh, and Wonder Woman. And then there was Cyborg, who was there as well. Uh, he had very the, very little to in do. the theatrical cut and the director's cut. He had more. Uh, he had a it, lot more it, than the director's ish. Cut. Uh, you know, perc- no, the percentage was the same. I guess in terms of raw minutes, perhaps. Mm, uh, I think. I think you. But you the movie was also wrong, the movie was also four days in length. Yeah, so. Uh, I, I like a long movie. I just don't like that long movie. Fair enough. Uh, here they they're sort of relying on the fact that he kind of giggles a lot and makes dumb jokes, but he makes dumb jokes kind of randomly and mm. scenes mm. where it's not appropriate. Yeah, he drinks beer and that's all we kind of know about him. He loves his beer. He loves his specifically you know, brand name Guinness. Mm. So somebody's paying somebody for something. It's so heavy uh, too. He's about to go swimming. Yeah, you don't you don't want a, a, a stout. You want a light lager. Uh, there's a scene uh, partway through this movie where uh, Aquaman grabs a cockroach off of a branch. They're walking yeah. through a jungle. 
yeah. and says, uh, you should know more about sort of the surface world, humans. Yeah, because Orm has spent no time on the surface have, world. He doesn't yeah, even know what like a burger and fries yeah, are. Yeah, he doesn't, doesn't eat human food. He eats seafood and uh, ocean food. Is that, no, Some you of should, which is human food, to be fair. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I only eat lobsters, not like humans. Wait, we do that too. We, we, we do eat things we fish out of the ocean. Yeah. Quite a lot, in fact. Yeah. Uh, but then, yeah, Aquaman says, no, no, I'm going to play a prank on this guy. There's no reason for him to play a prank on Orm in yeah. this moment. Just they wanted a funny moment. So he grabs yeah. a cockroach and says, no, humans eat these. You should try that. And Patrick Wilson, I think I've undervalued him as an actor, but, you yeah. know, does a go wonderfully comedic job of tasting a cockroach for the first time. And then going, and trying to pretend like this. Hmm. OK, I'm, I'm giving this a chance. OK, um, OK. The scene would, I can see what you like. This. The scene would have played better if he had actually eaten a bug on camera. If, if wow, Patrick yeah. Wilson were that kind of actor. Uh, I think I think, uh, I think the. the animal rights people wouldn't be too happy about that oh eat a cockroach i don't care but uh uh, nicholas cage ate a cockroach yeah i think he's on on the record saying he wished he hadn't well i'm I'm sure sure he's pretty grossed out by it yeah if you're wondering what we're talking about uh nicholas cage was in a vampire movie called vampire's kiss in which he played a yuppie in the 80s who becomes convinced that he's turning into a vampire whether or not he is is a little up for interpretation uh, and as he's like gradually deteriorating, he's like, I have to subsist on mm. on the living. And he just picks up a cockroach in his apartment and Big eats one too. It. It's like a two inch cockroach. Yeah. It's a huge thing. Nicholas Cage actually ate a real cockroach. Yeah, like he held it. Yeah. And you can you can tell how repulsed oh, yeah. he was to eat that cockroach. But he did. He ate one yeah. on he ate a bug on camera. <sighs> Patrick Wilson had eaten a bug, maybe this film would have had some. <laughs> what I'm saying is What I'm, I'm saying is if if I'm longing to watch an actor eat a bug <laughs> Something's wrong with your movie. <laughs> I'm gonna say I'm gonna give this movie credit for one thing, only one, mm. because honestly, I'm kind of astounded by how incompetent this movie came out. I know that there were a ton of reshoots, and there was all these notes, or whatever, like that, and allegedly Batman was in it for a while, and then he wasn't. I don't know how true any of that stuff is. It does feel like it went through the grinder in post production. Mm. Uh, but they usually don't come out this incompetent. Oh, and golly. Pretty... I've, I've seen so much worse. Black Adam, for instance. Oh, Black, Black Adam is barely a movie. This one barely... is at least a movie. I don't <laughs> it know, actually, man. like, it hangs together. I can kind of follow the plot. There's... I know who the characters I, I'd are. I'd much rather like, watch it, Black it Adam again than this. Oh, would... you're, you're mad, sir. I, I never said I wasn't. Um, Black Adam is garbage. But I'll give, the, I'll give the filmmakers credit for this one thing. Uh-huh. At some point... Because, you know, this is the last DC movie coming out, you know, after The Flash completely failed to reignite interest in in the franchise. Mm. They tried to. They tried to build up as much as they could. Um, And then the the actor's strike and the writer's strike went on and no one could promote Blue Beetle, so that movie never had a chance. And so, for the last few months at least, they knew Aquaman is definitely the last film in this franchise. They're not going to try to, like, save it in some way. We're just going to put it to bed. And at some point, they decided that a certain shot in the mid-credits scene <laughs> was going to be the last image yep. on screen, besides credits, in the entire DC Extended Universe. This would be the final thing that takes us out of the DC Extended Universe. This is what we will have to remember it by. And I think they made a good choice. <laughs> If you've, I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's the last, literally the last thing in the movie. It's not a spoiler, but I want you to, if, if you're going to see it, at least give me something to look forward to. Um, say what you will about it. 
I feel someone's making a commentary. I think James Wan is having a little bit of fun. I think he's taking the bit. piss. Um, yeah. I, I, I want to put it on James Wan. It could have been any number. <clears throat> yeah. Maybe it was you know Patrick Wilson improvising something because Patrick Wilson is involved in, in that scene. Um, but yeah, it's... I, I appreciate that. appreciate mm. that they tried to go out on something different. I appreciate <laughs> that it wasn't a tease. I yeah. appreciate that it wasn't like this multi-dimensional close-out yeah. ceremony. Yeah. Just they they made a, a dumb, not very good movie. Yeah, it's uh, uh, it's a bad film. I, I, bad I clearly film enjoyed it more than you. I don't like it. Oh, but I, didn't, I don't. I, was, I don't think it's repellent or anything because I've seen re- repellent movies in this series. I, I don't know if I call it repellent. There's definitely things that piss like, me off about. It. I think the, like, the, the Amber Heard stuff is annoying. I think I, there's this weird element where like Aquaman is king, but he hates being king, and he, what he says is all the stuff I want to do is ruined because there's like this r- r- represented representative like democracy uh-huh. and like i have to go through like a council that represents the people and they turn down all my ideas and i'm like what are your ideas mm. what are they shooting down are they shooting down good ideas or are they just shooting down here's what a beer swilling bro dog who only wants to spin donuts on a beach in his motorcycle wants to do with the kingdom because it just comes across as he hates democracy he befriends a fascist dictator and that's the movie. And I'm like, I just, what, you have no ideas. You don't even know what the hell you're about. Everything comes across weird and unthought out. I don't, I, ah, I can't get into any of this. I thought we were talking about Aquaman and not Rebel Moon anymore. Hey! hey. Uh, let's, let's completely change gears. Because we have some non-gigantic visual effects movies. I'll just say this. I'm glad blockbusters are, are at a low period right now. Yeah. That the big movies, uh, I, I read an article by, um, it was Scott Mendelson, who's mm. uh, a big, um, he writes a lot about box office. But yeah, he was, he was the box office analyst for Forbes for a long time. And uh, there were hits over Christmas weekend, mm-hmm. but none of them were the gigantic blockbusters. They nope. weren't the big tent poles. Like it was like, Wonka did pretty good. Wonka did okay. The Color Purple did okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these smaller movies released off to the... Considered like off to the side movies were the ones keeping the theaters open yeah. over the weekend. And uh, Scott Mendelson said... That's what we have to look forward to. Yeah, I'm it's not going to be tent poles. It's going to be a little, a, dozens of tiny little poles. Yeah. as we go along, and that's going to be occasionally way more will, fucking interesting. And occasionally one of them will hit getting. really hard and yeah. it'll make a big profit, and that's really really great. But yeah, that's that's healthier. Yeah, in the yeah. long run, you know, like you more interesting. It's more interesting for me. Like it used to be, studios had like a couple of franchises. There'd be like two mm. big franchise movies a year. Per but then they do a, a lot of other things exactly. in between. You yeah. would have a Star Trek and a Mission Impossible, and then a bunch of little things. You know, like this is all Disney's got now. Mm. Like that's why they were, they had like their worst year, like in memory. Like I think since like the eighties. If not financially, then at least in terms of like you know perception of quality, mm. where not counting the pandemic, that was no one's fault. But like they they just doubled down on superheroes and the same kind of animated movie, and audiences rejected all of them at once. And then they're like, "Well, shit, we have nothing now. Mm. We have nothing. We don't. We don't put they out put, smaller, put all, all different their eggs movies. In one basket, yeah. yeah. And uh, I think they're starting to realize they screwed up. But um. There are some interesting movies that came out over the weekend. The, the the one that I think we both saw, so let's start there. Okay. Um, is this really fucking beautiful drama called All of Us Strangers. Um, it's from uh, director Andrew Haig, 
Uh, and it's uh, based on a novel uh, by Taichi Yamada, uh, which had previously been turned into kind of a horror movie in Japan. Um, but this version is... Which, which I, I looked up the story of the, the Japanese movie. It's very, very different. Yeah, the uh, setup is similar and it goes in a very different direction. Um, this version is much more kind of sweet and sad and romantic. Um, Andrew Scott who you probably know if you watched Fleabag or Sherlock or I think it was Inspector. Was he one of the bad guys in Inspector? I, I've never... I, I don't recall seeing... I've seen some of his movies, but yeah. he hasn't stood He, he hasn't stood done his... He's done a lot more, like, uh, uh, exceptional work in television than he has in movies. Right. Uh, he, he stars as a middle-aged uh, uh, gay man. He's a gay writer. He's one of only, like, two guys living in this brand new building. The other one's played by Paul Mescal. And... And for a long time of this of this movie, uh-huh. you don't know what year it is. Yeah, and it feels post-apocalyptic. It could be just them. It could they, be they could be the only people yeah. left on the planet. They as could far be as we ghosts know. living right. in in limbo. And I was half mm. expecting that, honestly. And mm. whether or not it's true is irrelevant, honestly, because that's not really what the movie's about. Um, Andrew Scott's a writer, and he's trying to write about his life, trying about his childhood, and his parents. Uh, who are played by Claire Foy and Jamie Bell. Uh, they died when he was very young. They died when he was like 11 he was or something. 12, he was 12, he was 12 years old, okay. yeah. died when he was 12. Uh, when a car accident. Very sad. Very sudden. And he has never really processed and moved on from that. And he grew up uh, uh, gay in a time where there was still a lot of stigma, a lot of fears about AIDS, and he just feels like he's never really lived his life. And while he's researching, you know, his past, going through his old things, he goes to visit his old childhood home, and his parents are there, mm. just and living there. And they haven't aged a day since they died, so now he's older than them. Well, he, he gets on the train, he goes to this house, and they're still there. Um, and it, it feels like a time travel movie. Mm-hmm. It was like a science fiction conceit. Mm-hmm. And, or it's uh, supernatural, but whatever. And, there's, and there seem to be rules, which is sort of where the film starts to falter a little bit, mm-hmm. because it doesn't... Not that I want like clear explanations, but there's yeah. just enough explanations for me to want more explanations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he goes to the house and he talks to them, and clearly, like their death is still in front of them. Mm-hmm. So he's going back in time. Yeah, his they don't remember how they died. They don't yeah. know that. So that's his yeah. childhood self isn't there. Like he's not interacting <sighs> with his childhood mm-hmm. self, but his parents are there, and mm-hmm. he gets to talk to them and have time. And it's acknowledged right at the beginning that this is something that they've done before. They know each other and they meet on the regular, he and his dead parents. In fact, they don't even really explain right at the beginning how long they've been doing this. I wasn't sure if mm. they'd done it before or just they just fell into it naturally. I don't know mm. if that's explicitly Well, there's stated, no astonishment or this well, is something that so just began. I think that's uh, what's so fascinating what it about is, it. It's just, mm. even if it is the first time, like mm. it doesn't have to be like, what wonders, I have so many well, questions. But it could, yeah, it could just be something he's imagining, like something yeah. for his book. What would I say to my parents if they were alive today? And yeah. it's kind of working this out. And yeah. when he returns back to his apartment, Paul Mezcal is there. Paul Mezcal is... Uh, very unhappy, he's drinking alone, he lives alone, and uh, just sort of knocks on his door, it's like, hey, want to hook up? Yeah. And at first he says, no, that's you're drunk, this is weird, no. Yeah. But then later on he comes over, it's like, let's try something. You well, know, let's let's see is, if we can connect. Well, he says is, let's talk and smoke pot, and mm. then after they, like, you know, mm. get to know each other a bit, then, then hooking then, up is then, on the yeah, table. Then, then, they yeah. start, then they start hooking up, and mm. you realize that yeah. They're both very sad people. Yeah. 
they're both trying to connect to each other, and even though their world is uh, sort of very downbeat and hazy, they they tr- they go through a lot of the motions. They go out to clubs together. Yeah. Uh, you know, they kind of uh, are, are trying to capture the party again. But what's really happening is they're trying desperately to reach each other. Yeah. And a lot of that is really beautiful. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, these scenes of the uh, these two men who are very uh, desperate for connection, but unsure how to really do it correctly. Yeah. Trying to work their way toward that. And you realize uh, that, like, a lot of their inability to connect with people mm-hmm. relates to how they are with their families. Mm-hmm. Paul Mescal's like, yeah, I'm, I still know my family, but ever since I came out, I've been like the other kid mm-hmm. and I've never really felt like I was part of the family ever since. And Andrew Scott, you know, his family's dead and his family never really knew him. They died before he could come out to them. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the scenes of him with Claire Foy and or Jamie Bell are about him kind of filling them in on who their son was. And seeing them handle that in really messy ways. This is the scene where he comes out to his mom. Hmm. Ooh, that was that was that was a roller coaster emotionally for me because well, you can tell she, she's she, like she's a, she a, means well, well, but she also doesn't know anything, yeah. and she's got some really bad ideas in her head. Yeah, she, she's like, uh, <clears throat> stuck in the 1980s and doesn't have yeah. you know kind of ideas as to. Uh, you know, she doesn't know any queer people. She doesn't yeah. know how queer people live. How do you live? What's going on? Like, is yeah. is it is it dangerous? Like, no, nobody what cares anymore. What if you wanted to get married mom. someday? We can now. We can, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, like <laughs> she, she's like really kind of backward, and that's yeah. really painful for him. But yeah. at the same time, it's like, okay, I gotta walk through this shit again. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to go through the whole scene because mm. it's my favorite scene in the movie, and I want people to discover it on their own. But the mm. scene where he talks to Jamie Bell after that, yeah destroyed me <laughs> it was such a great scene i think jamie bell with his dad jamie, jamie bell gives great. the best performance in this movie arguably and, and that's a, that's a lot there's like four great performances mm-hmm. in this movie i think i think everyone's excellent yeah. in it um, uh it it comes to a kind of an unsatisfying conclusion unfortunately oh, yeah? there's a, a twist at the end which i don't want to give away mm-hmm. that doesn't add or subtract to the drama that came before in fact it kind of is a distraction hmm. i feel like the filmmakers couldn't find a, a satisfying way to wrap up the whole of the drama or the drama in sort of the the present day as it were or back in the building so they threw in an extra twist Mm. about the Paul Mezcal character and it didn't need that Mm. in fact it just sort of confused matters and made me start thinking of is this what are the rules of this sci-fi slash supernatural universe and that's not what I should be thinking about at these like final emotional moments sure Uh, that part I think was was a little misguided and and that kind of Mm. it doesn't take the film down it doesn't ruin the whole movie in fact everything up to that point was really kind of very emotional it's very uh there's a kind of real hefty grit to the movie that i appreciate it's not a slick movie Uh, it's as messy as the feelings these people are saying and i appreciate all of that but then at the end it pulls out this dumb plot conceit that was really unnecessary. I don't know. I, I, didn't, I didn't respond to it that way. No, I, I agree it's probably unnecessary. I think it's a matter of what note you want to end the movie on. Do you mm. want to end it without telling what choice they made? Do you want to end it on something kind of hopeful? Do you want to end it on something kind of sad? Do you want to say that, like, you know, we've grown and now everything's going to be okay? Or did we maybe miss a chance? Um, 
I thought I thought it like weirdly fascinating actually the way mm. that the movie ended. I, I agree, you probably didn't need it, mm. but I don't know. The, the, you mentioned the rules, and I think that does sort of come into play towards the end. Yeah, like um, if if it had remained abstract, like yeah. I'm seeing my parents, and I don't know why. I'm just sort of yeah. working through this in my head. That would have been yeah. fine. The yeah, twist, the, yeah, I, gave it a structure, and I don't I don't yeah. like that structure. I, I'm. Did you ever see the Anthony Minghella film Truly Madly Deeply I with Alan Rickman? Yeah. Um, I forget who played the lead in that. Mm. Um, I love Truly Madly Deeply. I think that's Anthony Minghella's best movie, and he did The Talented Mr. Mm. Ripley. He died too young, but he did The Talented Mr. Ripley. He won an Oscar for The English Patient. Not a big fan of The English Patient, but... Um, mm. Truly Madly Deeply it's, is it was about... Glenn, Glenn Close. No. Oh no, it wasn't Glenn Close. It was not Glenn Close and Julie Madly Deeply. Uh, I think Alan Rickman. Oh, here we go. It's Glenn, uh, Alan Rickman, Juliet Stevenson. Juliet Stevenson, wonderful was the actor. Lead actress in that. She movie. was recently in. Um, I think she was in Secret Invasion. So get that paycheck, Julia. Uh, <laughs> no shade. Get the paycheck, but fine. Um, she plays a woman whose husband. They married. You know, they're they're young. He died unexpectedly. Uh, after they've only been married for a little while. And and then he moves she, back in. Yeah, she, she, yeah, she's grieving. It's been like a year, and she just can't move on. She's constantly like talking to him or like hearing him give her advice. And finally, she's just so lonely, he decides, okay, I'll come back. And he's living in her apartment. He can't leave her apartment. So when she's in her apartment, they're together. They're in love. They can have sex. They can play music together. Uh, and uh, but mostly he just watches videos because there's not much he can do. Um, there's a mention of like rules in that movie. It's not like Ghost where they go into like great detail over what the rules are. Uh, but she's she's just like well, how how is this possible? And he just says, oh, it's, it's, it involves making a choice, and it's it, you wouldn't understand. Like, but they 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 dressed they, it. They yeah. dressed it a little bit, and that's all you need. It's just basically there there's a way to there's a way that this works, and it's fine. And I feel like. This is very much feels like a spiritual successor, even though I think the novel predates Truly Madly Deeply. But this movie version is very much a successor, I think, to Truly Madly Deeply, in that our relationship with people who have passed on, who meant a lot to us, uh, can be literalized, can be brought back in a very real, tangible way. And maybe a lot of people do this. Maybe this is just a thing that happens and nobody talks about it. I don't know. There's something about that that I found just absolutely kind of weirdly beautiful. Hmm. Just this relationship to the dead. I would love to go back home and see my dad there. Yeah. Like, yeah. I thought about this. Like, oh, what would I tell my dad about, like, the last 10 years of my life that he wasn't there for? And, yeah. um, and I cried, like, my eyes out yeah. watching this movie. It just really hit a lot of my buttons. Mm. And... I loved it. I just think this is a wonderful motion picture. I just, I just loved it. Pieces. I, I, I liked it a lot. Okay. I, I, I did appreciate. I, I think I appreciated just sort of the modern day romance. Sure, that part's great. Uh, I thought that was really great. Um, and I, I did like how his exploration with his parents uh, kind of affected. We got to know who he was through sort of going back and talking to his parents. I wish there had been more confrontation. Yeah. Between he and his parents. It felt a lot like a play. There were like little mini vignettes, scenes where the characters are sort of sitting across mm. a table having conversations. Mm, that was uh, enough and, for me, I think. Uh, no, it's not a criticism. That's just a you know, descri descri description of the way it is. And um, and it seemed to me like there was a, a different climax was coming. It comes to a sort of a very sweet conclusion. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot was still unresolved with those parent <clears throat> characters. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and then they resolve the romance kind of badly. So this this feels like a very interesting contemplative miasma of ideas Mm -hmm. that somebody tried to form into a movie when it would have been a lot stronger, a little bit more freewheeling and abstract. Maybe. Maybe. I feel like how it turned out. Um, Okay, what do you want? um, hmm. Okay, we got three more movies left. Uh, Two that I saw, one that you did. Tell me me one of the ones you saw. Let's talk about Ferrari. All right. Because I... I, I've seen part of Ferrari, but I yeah. didn't finish it, so I can't review it. Totally fine. We get screeners. You can walk out of a theater or anything yeah. like that. Um, Ferrari's latest film from director Michael Mann. Michael Mann uh, has directed, I think, some of the better movies of the last 40 years. He directed Manhunter. He directed Heat. He directed Thief. And he directed what, what has he done for me lately? Well, okay. He directed that really excellent... He directed The Insider. He directed mm. uh, that really excellent adaptation of Last of the Mohicans. Uh, I didn't and, see Last of the Mohicans. Oh, it's it's a handsome I, I, epic, man. I, I haven't seen it's, Thief either. So oh, I'm not you'd love Thief. But I, I, love I did Thief. like... Uh, I'm, I'm very fond of Collateral. Collateral was great. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not as fond of Heat as many people seem to be. I think it's a fine crime drama. He did... Uh, he, did a, he had created or co-created uh, the TV series Miami Vice... Mm. Uh, in the early 80s and he did the movie version with Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx in the tw- in the 2000s which, which at the was t- actually pretty good it's a damn good movie yeah. at the time people didn't quite know what to make of it which uh-huh. is kind of interesting like I remember I left the theater I think they wanted like the camp and the bright colors I, I and left the like... theater and like I literally re- I remember the conversation to, I didn't know them just two strangers were having as they walked up with me they were just like ah, Bad Boys 2 was better and I'm like we can disagree on that, but these are not movies. Other than being cop movies, I don't think they're meant to be compared. Mm-hmm. Like Michael Mann did an art house cop movie, and I think he did a very, very good one. But some of his last couple of movies have not been great. Uh, his Public Enemies, mm-hmm. which is a nineteen thirties gangster picture, okay. um, well, John Dillinger, John Dillinger, Johnny Depp played John Dillinger. Um, it it's one of the most aesthetic aesthetically underwhelming movies because he he fell well he fell into that digital photography yeah before it was really well being used for more interesting means so everything looked really hyper real and fake and low-fi yeah because in, in a way that's unappealing to look when at he, he shot Miami vice on digital and he did not try to make it look like 35 millimeter. Yeah, same with collateral. Yeah, and he, I, and yeah. I like the aesthetic of collateral. He leaned into what the technology was actually doing differently, like how it handled night differently mm-hmm. than than like celluloid did, uh, and it, it just made like all of the night skies very busy with like you know electronic noise, and it's a great aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, when he did Public Enemies, he leaned into digital as a crisp high definition aesthetic. And it left everything looking less like sort of an immersive world and more like play acting. Mm. And it just comes across as weirdly fake, and I can never really get into it. Um, And then he did a movie called Black Hat, which has some good bits, but I don't think ever really comes together. Oh, The casting is kind of rough. Chris Hemsworth plays a hacker, and like that's not in and of itself a problem, but he's never very convincing as a hacker. He's not it's like Hugh convi- Jackman and Swordfish. Like, I don't, I don't buy... Not that a handsome person can't be a hacker, but I don't think you can be a hacker. <laughs> Specifically yeah, but... you. I don't think... I, don't, I just don't get it. Also, it, uh, Black Hat is abysmal. I know yeah. it has its defenders, but... Um... It it's it feels like a guy who doesn't really understand computers trying to make a computer thriller. Maybe uh, you, you compare that to 
something just like from the mid nineties that is utterly dated, like, like hackers. Yeah. And hackers is like infinitely more entertaining than something like black hat, which is trying to say, Oh, everything's broken down. Information is everywhere and out for whoever can hack into it. It's like, you're not making profound statements. Well, the problem would have been profound like 20 years earlier. I think the problem is, and I think this is where not every Michael Mann movie is this, but I think a lot of his best movies are. I don't think there is a single, at least American filmmaker, mm. who does a better job of showing people good at their jobs. Mm. That's what he excels at. He takes people who are dead serious about their jobs. A lot of times it's cops. Sometimes mm. it's robbers. Sometimes it's people who work at 60 Minutes. Um, but a hitman, a, mm. a cab driver. Like, he takes people who take their work very, very seriously and becomes their personality. And he shows you through the realities of their work, even if plot takes a back seat, just how fascinating they are. Thief is a great example of this. Um, Black Hat could have been his opportunity to do that with like the world of like computers or computer security, and instead it just kind of became an unconvincing techno-thriller. I feel yeah. like he kind of lost the thread. So... When he's doing a biopic of, um, it's Enzo Ferrari. Enzo Ferrari. Enzo yeah. Ferrari, who, you know, the car guy. Uh, he had a, uh, focuses yeah. on a very significant summer yeah. in Enzo Ferrari's life. Yeah, so Enzo Ferrari, he's uh, he's about 60 years old. He's like Adam Driver, who's about 40 and never looks 60. <laughs> he always looks like he's been quickly made up to look 60 but in they, a Saturday Night Live sketch. Yeah, they, they clearly sprayed his hair silver. It's, it's really weirdly unconvincing. Mm. And I thought when the movie started... Okay, he's playing 16 now, but maybe there's going to be a lot of flashbacks to when he's younger, and so that's going to justify why you cast Adam Driver. No, there's like 60 seconds mm. <laughs> taking place 20 years earlier. Maybe there was originally going to be more. I don't know, but man, I really found that distracting. But l- let's put that aside for a second. Um, this is a story of a time when Enzo Ferrari's, uh, you know, he makes these some of the most impressive sports cars in the world, but they're not mass-produced, and uh, they're, they're collector's items. And the reason why people buy them is because they set world records and they do great at races. Well, the world record has just been lost and we're struggling to win medals at any of these races. And if we can't, if we can't win a medal at this race this weekend, we're fucked. We're completely fucked. And on top of that all, he's got this really volatile relationship with his wife, Philip Penelope Cruz. Who owns a stake in his company. Yeah, like, she's, like, owns, like, half of it, so, um, it's kind of a... And they had to, like, during the war or something like that, they explain that. Um, and he can't piss her off, which sucks. This is, like, some mid... I think 1957, Yeah, mid mid to late uh, 50s. And, um, so he can't piss her off. But, but he he's in love se- with another woman and has a secret son with her. He has a secret family, so yeah. yeah. So that's Which, that's, that's going to yeah. come to a head this weekend as well. Yeah, like, like I said, I haven't seen all of this, yeah. but I can comment on the plot part yeah. that I saw. And yeah, the, the er- early scenes, it was kind of unclear as to how much his wife knew at first. Mm-hmm. But then later in the movie, she finds out and she's incensed that he has the I secret family. I think she suspects family. he has affairs at first, but mm-hmm. she doesn't know he has a secret family. That's one thing yeah. I'm And especially bad because they uh, he had a son with his wife who died, got sick, died, mm-hmm. nothing they could do. Uh, and now she went, her finding out he has a secret family... It's bad enough he has a secret girlfriend, but that is a secret son really pisses her off. Like, really gets under her skin. Like, you have this with someone else? So he's dealing with that as he is trying to 
coach race car drivers, uh, trick the press into giving him good publicity, coach people into actually winning races, uh, and that's the movie. Can he save his company and hopefully preserve some semblance of family by the end of all of this? And you know what? Great idea. <laughs> like, just, if you're going to tell a story about Enzo Ferrari, this is a good chapter to do. Uh, and I think Adam Driver's an excellent actor. I think he's miscast here. Uh, Penelope Cruz is absolutely wonderful, but Haley Steinfeld plays his girlfriend. I think she's miscast here. I never, I don't find her convincing at all in this movie. I actually think she's a very good actor, but I don't think she, she can't works play here. This kind of a role. She doesn't play this kind of role. She also looks like she, she also looks like they're trying to like age her up twenty years mm. unconvincingly. Like <laughs> just get people who are the right age. I don't know why we're doing this. Um, it, it's it's really yeah. frustrating that there are all these like weird aesthetic things because that's actually something that Michael Mann has always been very particular about the details and. As a result, even when things aren't necessarily exciting right now, it's always very interesting because it always feels very intricate and lived in. Hmm. For me, there's bits in Ferrari that rang really false. So even though I'm kind of wrapped up in this story of him, you know, trying to save his company, trying to, like, you know, do all these things that, you know, I, I, I'm at least g generically interested in, there's always something that kept me out of it. Hmm. Uh, some, there's a couple of uh, car crashes in the movie, and... The visual effects range from good to, is that finished? <laughs> oh, ouch! Like I'm not sure mm. that's supposed to, and that's it's, it's a thing where like if you're, if you're CGIing metal, just a piece of metal flying through the air, it doesn't like move with the wind. There's no flesh. There's mm. no shadow. It might just be just a, a simple tragic side effect of that, ah, where it's yeah. just like this car is flying through the air. Like, it just kind of looks like a like a cylinder. Yeah, like flying a, cross screen, it's not super convincing. I don't well, know how you fix that. Maybe yeah, well, you can't. Weird, I don't know. Weirdly, uh, a CGI airplane just sort of floating in a blank mm -hmm. sky always looks unconvincing. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, just can't get the light, whatever it is. The, uh, uh, the plane crash in Air Force One. Admittedly, CGI technology was still pretty new at the time. Well, that was but like 97, that movie. I know, yeah. but I remember thinking to myself, because that was one of the first times I think they bothered mm -hmm. to do a CGI plane crash. And it's like... No, use a model. <laughs> that, looked, that looked really bad and unconvincing. So, That's uh, an otherwise slick movie. Answer me this, because I, I yeah. like I said, I saw a portion of this movie. Sure. There's a scene where uh, we're supposed to understand who Ferrari is mm. when he is giving sort of a, a speech about winning a race to mm -hmm. his team. Yeah. Like, he just meets at this luncheon. Yeah. And it is, like, the most flatly delivered, mm -hmm. boringly, sh like, low-flat angle of yeah. uh, Enzo Ferrari. And he doesn't... He doesn't like stand up. There's not a swell of music. There's not that Hollywood moment where you kind of understand. They're, they're underselling why, why it. Why these? Fact, why yeah. the? Why this? People would listen to this guy. He's just sort of. Yeah, we gotta win some races. It's really yeah. kind of. Is there a moment later in this movie mm -hmm. that has the audience understanding why? he's an important figure or why people would listen to this guy or why his cars are important. I think because it's all presented so matter of factly that I, I'm was unsure what we were supposed to be looking we at. We kind of take that for granted a little yeah. bit. I, like there's a great speech that like, uh, um, the, uh, who plays Mike Wallace in uh, the insider. Oh, it's uh, uh, Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer. Yeah. yeah. Christopher Plummer has a great speech. Like, Al Pacino is placed as producer, and he's reading Mike Wallace to filth. But, like, he's still <laughs> defending 60 Minutes. He's talking about why this is great. We're, we are selling why this is important. I would actually argue Ferrari doesn't do a great job of that. I was oh, a little disappointed kidding. by this movie. Yeah. I'm really... It, I was even, like... Blackhead doesn't work, but I was... I, was, I Even I was like, it's okay. Mm. Like, I... 
this one's should have been forgive the term in Michael Mann's wheelhouse. And it just doesn't click, and there's just a bunch of small decisions. Maybe one of them, and the movie would have been fine. Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, it's Shailene Woodley. Okay, well, she's a little miscast, but whatever. It doesn't hurt the whole movie. But, like, every little thing just piles up on top of each other until the movie is not bad, but clearly it was intended to be great, and it doesn't come close to me. So I didn't didn't love it. I didn't love Mm -hmm. it, and I'm not entirely sure I liked it. Which is unfortunate. Uh, what we needed was a fight between him and Ford. Mm. Make a movie called Ford versus Ferrari. Ford versus Ferrari is pretty good. Okay, someone's dad is watching that right now <laughs> and having the for the for the sixth time, and they're yeah. having a great time with it. I don't remember much of that movie, like specifics, but I do remember really enjoying the act of watching it. It's like a very well-crafted motion picture. It's a really fun movie. Kristen Bale is excellent in that movie. Uh, And Matt Damon is doing the Matt Damon thing, and I think he's a very good actor. Yeah, he's um, John Bernthal's in that, right? Isn't he pretty good in that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's such a movie where, like, I just, the plot is all car stuff, and I I remembered it after I saw it, but it's been a couple of years, and I couldn't give you all of the details other than the gist of it. That movie, like, points out all the car stuff. Yeah. It's like, this is why we need to make it this way. Here's yeah. what's wrong with this car. Yeah. Where it has like race after race. Here's why we need to get faster. Um, I, I turned off Ferrari before they got to any of that. So mm-hmm. I, I couldn't say how they did the car stuff, but it's, there was no really, interesting. It's, it's not the, it's not there wasn't a lot of interesting character stuff it, in the beginning. There's one sequence in Ferrari, which is very harrowing and very dark mm-hmm. uh, involving racing, but the racing is <laughs> Ferrari doesn't race. There's no. a character we meet who is his eraser, but he's part of a team, mm-hmm. and it's not really about the race. It's about struggling to keep a company going, depending on how the race turns out. But it's not actually a race, it's not Gran Turismo. Um, so it's an odd duck, and I again, close to working, but it just doesn't click. Um, tell me about The Iron Claw, which I didn't get to. Okay, um, The Iron Claw is, it's another biopic. Um, it is from. Uh, let me look up the. Uh, the Sean Durkin. Get the stuff up here. Look up all of this details. Oh, like the, the wrestling um, family, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's about the Von Erich family, mm. who uh, was a wrestling dynasty uh, from like the seventies and eighties, and it was about the uh, Von Erich dad, mm. who uh, was very very much uh, like a like a, a tyrant with the kids mm. and actually said things out loud at the dinner table. Like, well, you, we, you, we know that this one's you, you, this son right now, you're my favorite son. The other ones, eh, you're like second, third, fourth, but you know, those, that order can change. Like he says asshole yeah. things to his sons yeah. at all times. Make him fight um, for his love. Yeah. And his, his name is, uh, he, he wrestled under the name Fritz von Eric. Because his shtick used to be, he was like an evil Nazi wrestler. Oh my god! So he chose the name Fritz von Erich. That was his his ring name. But his sons all his sons all took the name von Erich, so they were known as the von Erich family. Okay. Um, their real name, last name was Atkinson. Oh, okay. Um, but this is uh, told mostly from the perspective of Kevin von Erich, who is the surviving von Erich. Uh, the von Erich family suffered tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. And uh, of the five Von Erich kids, four of them, or three of them took their own lives. 
Uh, one of them died in childhood. Uh, it's sort of a miracle that Kevin managed to survive. Uh, and a lot. This movie uh, sort of doesn't take a lot of time to show how fun wrestling was. Mm-hmm. This you expect you you see uh, uh, pageantry. Yeah, yeah and there is the, an element of pageantry to it, especially yeah. in that era when things were kind of mm-hmm. growing and wrestling was sort of coming into the mainstream in the early and mid '80s. Yeah. Ric Flair shows up in this movie. There's an yeah. actor who plays Ric Flair, uh, and. There isn't that moment where we get to see Ric Flair kind of come out with the cape and go, woo, and that's not in the movie. We're, yeah. we're not focusing on that. It's actually incredibly downbeat because it's all about how miserable these guys were mm. and how their father was emotionally distant and abusive and how they uh, suffered injuries. And one of them got in a car wreck and lost his foot. Um, it's been said by wrestling fans that the Von Erics are proof that curses exist. Oh, wow. Uh, just everything went bad for these guys. And this movie is just a litany of how bad and tragic and sad things got. Uh, it is. Oh. It's not a drama. It's a tragedy. In the classical Ooh. sense. Okay. About how things go bad for this family and things continue to go bad for this family mm. and how hard it is to survive when you're living under this cloud. There's even a few moments that are vaguely Shakespearean. Mm. Uh, Mara Tierney plays the Von Erich uh, matriarch. She's sort of right. like the mom. And when one of the sons dies, she turns her... He's like... Uh, there's a scene where she's watching TV and she kind of like looks up and there's a shot where he's sitting on the stairs yeah. behind her after he's died. Yeah. And he's sort of looking at her and she turns around and he's gone. But yeah, it's like this kind of Banquo's ghost feeling. Yeah. And of course the tragedy is we know what who's responsible for all this. Fritz von Erich, dad. Mm-hmm. And nobody has sort of the wherewithal or the emotional intelligence to sort of understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. This family had it so bad there was an additional von eric child who also took his own life who was cut from the movie <laughs> he's not even in the film jesus uh i don't know if i don't know if that's a, if i don't know how to feel about that honestly yeah okay, like, okay. on one hand that you know that, that poor legacy <laughs> but mm. on the other hand jesus yeah, Jeremy Allen White plays Carrie von eric um harris dickinson plays uh david von eric Mm-hmm. And Stanley Simons plays Mike Von Erich, and there was another young Von Erich, and there was a Chris Von Erich who's not in the movie. Right. And who, which uh, one does uh, Zach Efron play? He plays Kevin. He's the, okay. And, and Kevin, uh, mm-hmm. and some, and we focus so much on the brothers that there's actually, uh, these people actually all, all, some of them got married, some of them had relationships, mm-hmm. some of them had children. A lot of that is cut from the movie as well. Mm-hmm. I think we're focusing just on sort of Kevin and his journey. And um, it will rip your heart out but that's the arc of the film it's just a mm. downward slide there's sold there's, there's no no real catharsis <laughs> there's not a whole lot of you know the way it comes together at the end but mm. there's not uh, a reason to explore these people's lives other than to just sort of tell you how sad it has been for them and it's an incredibly sad movie Zac Efron is an excellent actor mm-hmm. I think he's an underrated actor. I agree. I, I think uh, because he came up through the Disney machine and because he was you know, sort of a pretty boy, yeah. he kind of got pigeonholed for a well, long he, time. He also but, got like a lot of comedy roles, which didn't 
ask a lot of not that comedy always does but like it didn't ask a lot of him in a yeah lot of he life. hasn't had a lot of dramatic work yeah he's really good in that film me and orson mm-hmm. wells mm-hmm. Uh, i really liked him in um uh, he played the young matthew perry in the movie 17 again oh i didn't see that uh, one. which is it's a it's a disney mm-hmm. premise it's a guy in his 40s and he goes back in time well he doesn't go back in time he like he goes back into the body of his own 17 it's, it's like self, a reverse yeah. it's like a reverse big he like i wish i was i was cool when i was mm-hmm. 17 i was in the basketball i, team I wish of, i was 17 and I'll, yeah. and poof in the present he's 17 yeah. Again. Yeah. Uh, and you know it, the the premise is hackneyed, but Zac Efron makes a meal of that. Like he's <laughs> really, really good. He understands mm-hmm. how to like capture the physicality of it and play like an old man in a younger man's body. Like mm-hmm. that's an easy part to do badly. It's an easy mm-hmm. part to even do in a mediocre way. He found a way to do it and make it great. Mm-hmm. And I will go to bat for that movie, even though it's you know not great, just because damn it, see Zac Efron in that thing. He's awesome. Yeah. 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 Um, a lot of the movie takes place in sort of in Texas of night of uh, the 1970s and early 1980s, and I yeah. was was assured by my wife, who is uh, from Louisiana, that a lot of the period detail was correct. Oh, that's good. Um, I hope you like uh, Rush's song "Tom Sawyer" because they play all of it. <laughs> that's the kind of universe these guys live okay. in. Fair uh, enough. So there, there's a lot of like unspoken masculine camaraderie mm. that this film is trying to open up. And it also says that uh, just right on the other side of that masculine camaraderie is pressure to cause utter despair. Mm-hmm. If you like movies about despair, this has got it. Yeah. Uh, but it's not so miserableist that it's sort of setting my bleak heart aflame. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just, it's just sad. It's yeah. a sad story and it's a sad movie. Uh, if you like sad movies, you like weebies, go for it. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we got one more movie to review, uh, and it's a bit of an about face. Uh, it is the musical adaptation of The Color Purple. And this is an interesting scenario because this is a movie with a lot of legacy. And, you know, we've done it before. We've talked about, like, you know, sort of setting the stage. Where did all these stories and movies come from? Where did these filmmakers come from? Uh, even though The Color Purple, you know, it was a celebrated book. It was uh, an acclaimed movie by Steven Spielberg. Uh, it turned into a huge Broadway play. I think it won some Tonys, or at least was nominated. Um, I've never read or seen it. You, I, you haven't seen I've never Spielberg's s- Color Purple? No, I think it's or... the one made big Spielberg film I've never mm. seen. And I, it's not by design. It just didn't kept not coming up and then this movie was like on the horizon and i thought to myself do i see the first movie do i read the book or do i take this rare opportunity to go into something completely like i I have a general idea of what it's about Mm. but like it hasn't really been spoiled for me the way like some other classic movies have where like i i know everything that happens in this movie i just haven't seen it you know Mm. so i was like fuck it okay i'm just gonna see this I'm going to see it with as little context as possible and just and try to, like, take that. And, like, so if you're a fan of the novel, if you're a fan of the musical, if you're a fan of the Spielberg movie, um, you'll probably be comparing this movie to those on some level, whether you mean to or not, and your reaction might be incredibly different from mine. And that's totally fine. That's totally cool. I'm just setting the stage right now. Uh, the Color Purple is a film from Blitz Batsawule. Uh, and it stars Fantasia Barino, and I think this is her acting debut, uh, at least on film, uh, as a woman named Celie, who, uh, at the turn of the last century, uh, she's being raised by a horrible father. Uh, and she keeps getting pregnant, and he keeps 
giving away or possibly selling her children away. And she's got one sister who she loves, and she's living with this horrible dad, and they run a shop together. And then this guy, played by Colin De- Coleman Domingo, his name, he calls himself Mr., uh, offers to uh, marry uh, Celie's sister, who is played by um, uh, Haley, uh, Holly Bailey, who was in uh, oh, okay. Little Mermaid. Uh, uh, because she's she's the pretty one. And the dad says, no, you can't have her, but you can have the other one. Mm-hmm. And he goes, all right, fine. So he takes her away. He's horribly abusive to her for many years. Yeah. Uh, his sister, or sorry, her sister is uh, uh, kicked out of the house, and she says she'll write, but she never does. Mm. Or does she? Celia uh, yeah. is miserable, absolutely like living in hell, and a, a unexpected ray of light shines when uh, Mister's ex girlfriend comes back to town. She mm. is a. Uh, uh, a, a big uh, singer. Yeah, just like a cabaret juke joint kind yeah. of singer. Yeah. Her name is Shug Avery, and she's played by Taraji P. Henson, so you know she's fabulous. <gasps> oh, that's good casting. Yeah, she's great. Um, and, you know, she's flirting it up with Celie's husband. Celie doesn't even give a shit. Uh, but she also hits it off with Celie. Yeah. A like bit. a lot. And uh, apparently in the books, it's it's not even queer coded it's just queer yeah uh, in the in yeah. spielberg's movie as well yeah um here it's it's in there but it's also could do, be more 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 clear do they kiss once they, they kiss in spielberg's movie it's yeah, kind of like it, a warm moment between the yeah, characters it, it, it's but it's not like a musical number it's hard you're not sure like how literal it is oh okay um but in any case uh you know being exposed to Shug Avery and her like you know uh, you know, life is a banquet kind of uh, lifestyle mentality, uh, and having like a friend mm-hmm. em- emboldens Celie to start thinking about her life differently and to question a lot of the things that people told her about all she could ever be and all she could ever do. And the second, I don't know, half of the movie, I guess, uh, is her gradually pulling herself out of her horrible circumstances. Mm. Um, there's a wonderful character played by Danielle Brooks, uh, who is extremely confident and uh, bold, and she pisses off the wrong person one day, and that goes in a very harrowing mm. place. But she's an incredible performer. Coleman Col- Domingo, uh, yeah, that's the uh, the character played by Oprah Winfrey yeah. in the original. Yeah. Um, I've, I've seen the original. Yeah, yeah. yeah Coleman Domingo is fantastic in this. Honestly, Fantasia Perino is amazing. <laughs> she's really good, and she she's. You know, musicals are in like kind of a weird place cinematically right now, and I feel like uh, you know we don't get a well, lot two of big them. hit ones. though. Colored Purple <clears throat> and Wonka are both that's musicals, true. and those are that's true. Both doing pretty well at the box office. I, I wouldn't call Wonka a particularly good musical, but mm-hmm. like it is, it is a hit musical. That's true. But my point is, for, as as a musical, it's just okay. Okay. Uh, you know, here the songs are great, um, and the performances are excellent, and but what's special about this, which I don't think we always get. Uh, and I think Spielberg's West Side Story did this pretty well, but not with every character. Um, the ability to act while singing <laughs> yeah. is something that I think we take for granted. Like, mm. I'm just going to stand here and I'm going to belt out this number or I'm going to do the show, but like, no, no, no. Like, to actually 
use the song as a storytelling element for your character. Fantasia Brino's great at that. Like she's okay. really, really just like, oh my god, you should be acting so much. You're you're amazing. Like the, the she probably is on stage. I'm sure she is, but like I live in LA, so we don't get to see it. Exactly. But like, no, I just she's she's really fucking good. Um as far as a, a narrative, I don't know. I feel like it leans a little too far into the mega happy ending kind hmm. of uh, uh, conclusion. All and right. I'm not sure. On one hand, it's kind of cathartic. On the other hand, I'm not entirely sure I buy it in some cases, some elements of the story as they come together. Um, but overall, um, it's it's a pretty damn good production. I, I think it's a great looking movie. Uh, and... Honestly, see for the performances of nothing else. Like, even if you... I, I, I Again, I haven't seen the Spielberg version. Uh-huh. But what I can say is that this version is full of great performances. Okay. <laughs> like, almost from top to bottom. Like, practically mm. everyone in the movie is given, like, a real standout uh, role. And that's just exciting to see. Mm-hmm. A movie with so many great characters and so many great actors playing those great characters. And all of them getting time to shine and getting, like, a great moment or a great scene or more... And that's just so satisfying as a cinematic experience. Uh-huh. Uh, that, yeah, I, I, I really, really liked it a lot. And I'm going to see the Spielberg version, and I'll probably read the book at some point. Uh, but, um, yeah, in a vacuum, without all of that context, I really like this color purple. I think it's, right. I think it's a pretty excellent film. It's, it's, I'm, I'm sorry I missed it, because yeah. I, I wish I could have... I feel tra- like they, traded a few words with you. I feel like they didn't do a great job building up to this in like sort of the award season ramp up. So when it finally came out, I think some people were surprised by how much people liked it. Okay. Because, you know, it didn't build up this giant word of mouth the way that some of the other like art house movies have this season. But like, yeah, it's a hit. People are enjoying it. People are it's making I mean, it's not making, you know, a billion dollars but like it's making money it is a popular film that people are genuinely enjoying and it's really easy to see why and so yeah if you were like hesitant about it i would say go see it it's really good film um all right that is it for critically acclaimed it's time to do a review roundup where we look over the films we reviewed this week and we grade them on a scale of C- minus to C+, plus because we were asked to. Uh, <laughs> our scale works like this. Uh, an average movie gets a C. Those are movies that are mediocre or, or kind of a mixed bag or more for one audience or another. Uh, a movie that is above average gets a C+. Plus. Those are movies that we genuinely recommend, whether we think the best movie ever made or just quite good yeah, yeah and then a c minus is below average those are movies that we don't really recommend we don't think they're particularly good we think it averages out in the negative uh on that note i'm going to give the color purple a c plus all right um i don't think it's I'm gonna make my list of the best movies of the year but i was genuinely impressed by it and i think it's a it's an excellently done drama and musical uh whitney mm-hmm. uh the iron claw iron claw uh it's it's a C plus. It's not a passionate one, okay. just because I think it does do a good job of uh, sort of capturing that era and a certain kind of toxic masculinity. But yeah, not going to be on my best films of the year list. All right, uh, Michael Mann's Ferrari. You know, all the pieces were there to make a great movie, but some of them were wrong, or some of them were like <laughs> turned upside down, or got yeah. waterlogged, or something. It just doesn't quite come together as well as it clearly should. So I'm going to give this a. I'm going to give it a respectable C-. Okay. Right? Just don't think it works, but it's not because it's bad. It just doesn't click. 
yeah. You know, like it's, but it, I, it doesn't work. I don't think. Um, let's see. Uh, all of us strangers. Uh, also a C plus. I really mm. like the drama. I really like some of the the sort of dreamier ideas. I, it doesn't come through. Like there are certain things that bug me about it, about mm. sort of the way it was structured overall. But other, in terms of like its emotional journey and these characters and what they're going through and other dealing with their pasts and working through their their feelings all of that's fascinating i love that uh yeah i'm giving it a c plus as well this is one of my favorite movies of the year i just think it's just very it's profound in a very natural way Hmm. even though it's high concept it just feels right it just feels like this is how the supernatural would probably work if it were real something Hmm. about it is just there's this plausible deniability to it but it's all based in emotion and the inability to let go or uh, the desire to uh, connect to people you can't anymore. And I just mm-hmm. think it's just absolutely beautifully concocted from top to bottom. Um, Aquaman and the Lost mm-hmm. Kingdom. Uh, it's it's a, a low C. Really? It's it's not not a complete disaster, but it ain't good. Oh, I think it's a complete disaster, and it ain't good, so I'm going to give it a C-. Um, I, I did not care for it. There's almost I, nothing in the movie that worked for me. I just saw it as an absolute mess mm-hmm. from top to bottom. Um, all right, and then lastly, Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire. Oh, well, I mean, if, if all our incessant complaining about the movie wasn't enough... Well, maybe some say, people came in late. I, it's a podcast. Start over. Um... Uh, <laughs> Didn't like Rebel Moon, uh, yeah. part one, and I know they're just going to do more action in part two. Nothing that makes me look forward to it. It's a C minus. It's yeah. oh golly, just Zack Snyder, man. It's a C minus. It's it's so rote. That's the thing yeah. that pisses me. It's, I, it's, it, I'm, I'm mad that it's rote, and the only things that like stand out as like distinctive are just ugly and unpleasant, and you just wonder why was it important for you to put that in there? Yeah. But even removing all of that, it's just. The flattest version of this. You you took, like, you know, it's a sci-fi seven samurai, and that gives you so much freedom to do so many things. And the the things that they did, at least in this first movie, are... Yeah, when they recruit one of the samurai, there's a spider. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of neat, but, like, it's not much. It just feels very... Get the same thing from a demo. Reel. It feels very it's, superficial, yeah. and it's it's really frustrating that it doesn't really feel like this is meaning much right now. And maybe the second half will do something interesting. Wouldn't that be okay. nice? Wouldn't if, it be nice if if it brings it all together? Yeah, it can happen. I, I had weird things have happened. I had a big issue with um, the Spider Man film that came out this year because mm. I feel like we didn't get the whole film. True. It it introduced a lot of interesting ideas, but didn't come to any conclusions about them, mm-hmm. which they're going to do in another movie in a way mm. that made the film feeling complete. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like I can't, I can't really review that movie because it's not yeah. finished yet. See, I think, uh, I, I and this one I yeah. feel like, like at least they kind of brought it to a conclusion. Yeah. But, uh, I, I hope like with Spider-Man, when I see the second half of this big gigantic movie, mm-hmm. it'll come together in some way. Wouldn't that be It'll nice? feel complete now. Yeah. I still think Across the Spider-Verse works better as one film than you do because mm. at the very least the Gwen Stacy part is a complete film even though it ends in a cliffhanger. Mm. Like her journey goes from beginning to middle end. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't I don't think this one works. But uh, you know, when they release the director's cut I guess I gotta see that. Uh, and hey, maybe it'll be better. Maybe? W- wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Justice League was better? Well, let's do it. Like, why not? <laughs> um, no, anyway. the, it, it was equal. Justice League was equal. <laughs> The, 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 I, the longer, watched, the longer version was 
just as entertaining I, as the theatrical I rewatched the theatrical version before I saw the director's cut. Hmm. It's, it's not. It's not great. We were a little too kind on it. I think <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 it, it's a mess. Anyway. Um, that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for joining us. Happy New Year. Uh, if you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, a new letters episode, and we might read your email. Uh, Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Uh, send us a physical letter to oh. the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yep, we're on social media at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. Special shout out to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, without you, we, we, we can't do this. Mm. Uh, and so in addition to getting all of our new episodes ad-free, in addition to getting uh, episodes of Thank Godzilla, it's Friday one week early, we have a lot of other exclusive shows over there. Uh, we do commentary tracks, we do uh, retrospectives about every movie ever nominated for Best Picture and Best International Feature at the Oscars. We have a show where we're re reviewing every single episode of Star Trek ever. Um all of these are ongoing, and uh, it just means a lot to us that you support us, Joe, and I, I hope you're enjoying the many exclusives we have over there. So if you want to join in the new year, you're feeling, uh, you're feeling flush with Christmas cash, <laughs> uh, sign up. You can get a bunch of fun stuff. And if not, that's totally cool. If you want to support the show, uh, leave us a review wherever you find us. That, that alone. That always helps. Yeah, yeah take 30 seconds, and you really help the show a lot. It's mm -hmm. true. Even if it's just one sentence. Um Anyway, that's it. Uh, we'll be back next time with our picks for the best films of 2023. Uh, and um, I guess that's it. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Everyone's a critic. <laughs>